You're listening to KKSM AM 1320 Oceanside, PalomarCollegeRadio.com. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and not of KKSM, Palomar College, its staff, the board of directors, or station management. You're listening to KKSM, Palomar College Radio. I have two words for you, predator drones. You will never see it coming. I think I'm joking. Drones are being used in drone strikes, and I support that entirely and feel the president was right. There's a reason why we shouldn't be using drones. It's because we don't just take out the target. We take out a lot of innocent civilians in these countries where these drones attack. This is basically blowing up in our faces. We've seen the blowback all across the Middle East. What if our foreign policy of the past century is deeply flawed and has not served our national security interests? I hate categories. Categories okay if you're going to the grocery store. But for me, the category screwed a lot of people up. We'll make everything metal. Blacker than the blackest black times infinity. Talk Radio, San Diego's source for heavy metal and other genres that are ignored by mainstream radio. San Diego's only libertarian talk show in a conservative-dominated market. More hard-hitting journalism than even the professionals themselves. Free Thought Radio, free speech, free expression, and free snowball! Only on KKSM Oceanside, AM 1320. The Radio Revolution. As it applies to you and me, our country isn't free.
Circus by Toxic. Welcome to Free Thought Radio. I'm your host, Alex Fiddle, here every Monday night from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Check out the show at facebook.com slash freethoughtradio. Uh, so a bit of a preview for next week's show. My guest is uh, Christina Tobin, who is uh, the founder and chair of the Free and Equal Elections Foundation and was also the ballot access coordinator for Ralph Nader's 2008 campaign. Um, and uh, later in tonight's show, in the third hour, I have my great coverage of uh, my experience at the NAM show 2013. But getting back to Toxic, uh, the song I just played, uh, my guest for tonight is the lead guitarist of Toxic, Josh Christian. And I would like for all of you to go ahead and Google Prescott Bush, George H.W. Bush's father, because uh, we do mention him a few times uh, during the interview. Um, so I think you should acquaint yourself with who he is and what he did um, uh, to and, and uh, why it's so important that, you, that you're informed on that. So uh, without further ado, joining me now is Josh Christian. He's the lead guitarist of the band Toxic, and that's spelled with a K. Great thrash metal band, uh, released two albums under Road Racer Records and toured with King Diamond and also was vocalist for uh, uh, former Toxic drummer Tad Leger's band, uh, Looser Tola, up until recently. Very talented dude. Uh, Josh, it's great having you on the show. How, how's it going? Thanks, brother. Thank you. Very good. Very good. Thank you for having me here. All right. So, so what were your influences uh, and how were you developing as a guitarist at the time you decided to start Tokyo, uh, which of course became Toxic? Well, Tokyo, you know, Tokyo was a, a garage band, uh, what we call garage bands, you know, it was myself and a couple of my friends, you know, playing at our parents' houses and doing the songs of the era uh, at that time. Um, you know, we played a lot of, a lot of power metal, a lot of Judas Priest, a lot of Scorpions. Um, uh, that was where our heads were at. But, I, you know, t uh, Tokyo was actually an offshoot from another band called Centaur. The real beginning of Toxic is way back when, like early, early 80s, late even 70s, like 79, 1980. A um, friend of mine, Lee, the guy, Lee Irwin, who at this point I think a lot of people know who Lee is. Lee was the bass player on the original Toxic demo. He played on the Wasteland demo and was involved in some of the writing for the World Circuit songs. Uh, Lee and I, uh, I had met him through a friend and he was my first real introduction to metal. In the late 70s, early 80s, metal was really just forming itself as heavy metal. The term heavy metal hadn't really been used yet that much. I mean, I'm sure that there were bands, especially English bands, like, you know, uh, that had already probably broken that out. But in the States, where I am especially, um, that wasn't a term that we had really heard. So the first wave of metal uh, was, the, you know, Judas Priest. Scorpions at that time, uh, Tigers of Pantang was big. Uh, just sort of this like UFO, Michael Shanker, obviously. Uh, the, that era of sort of power, hard rock. And Lee was the guy that turned me on to that. He was a few years older than I was. I met him through a friend. Um, I went over to his house and he had, you know, Accept and Scorpions. He had all these records. In fact, he's, that's the first time I heard Virgin Killers, uh, Scorpions, which is probably one of my favorite albums of all time. And uh, so we started 
playing almost immediately because I played guitar and I had a pretty good ear. I was able to pick things out quickly and he played guitar as well. Um, and we just started sort of jamming and our original band was called the photogenics, right? Mm -hmm. This was the first band and that was actually punk. We listened to all this metal, but when we got together, our playing level was what it was. We couldn't really play what we liked. So we played punk stuff because we could manage that. And we sounded somewhere like a cross between like, you know, the cramps and uh, the descendants or something, you know, like again, late seventies, you know, sort of hard, sort of gritty punk stuff that was going on. So the Photogenics was a punk band. So we listened to metal, but we played punk. Centaur was the, the band that came after that. Centaur was a bit of a softening, was a little more conceptual. We did start to play more power rock because we were getting better as musicians. And at that point, we switched to bass um, full-time, and that's kind of how he assumed his bass position. A couple more years goes by now. It's 1984, 1985. We, we come up with the name Tokyo. And we're introduced uh, to Mike. That's when Mike the Singer comes along. So that's how Tokyo comes into being. Our influences at that point was everything that I had just mentioned and then that next wave of metal that started in the early 80s. Iron Maiden at that point was huge. Iron Maiden was a gigantic influence on us. Um, Anthrax was actually, believe it or not, you know, that, that early, the early incarnations of the thrash scene um, was starting to kick in. And the first, the, the Anthrax demo was huge for us. We, we really rocked out to that. Obviously, No Life to Leather, the Metallica demo was huge. Um, you know, that was that era. It was a great, great time to be around. We were so, so lucky to be there at that because this stuff was all brand new. And it was a combination. It had this punk element to it. It was like, I think everybody around the United States did the same thing we did. Right, we all really couldn't play what we liked, so we played this sort of punky version of it, and through that, this other kind of music kind of evolved, which was a you know a confluence or a merger of the two styles. So you had power rock that met punk, and that was where Thrash really came from. That was the beginning um, for me, anyway. You know, that was how I heard it. Motorhead, of course, was another one. Venom, Venom was huge. You know, when those first records came out, I was like, holy, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so there you go. That's it. Definitely. And uh, so, what what was the progression of that turning into Toxic? Um, pretty short order after that, we realized that again, you know, that's that, you know, maturing process. You got the first four years, you kind of incubate, figure out what you're going to do. Then you land on a style. Once we arrived at the style we wanted to do, then it really actually moved pretty quickly. Um, we had always written a lot of originals. Another thing that I got from Lee, I got to give credit where credit is due. The, the dude really put me on the track to writing songs very early on. He was like, you know, every, anybody could play somebody else's stuff. Why don't we do our own thing? And we had always kind of had that. So our songs reflected whatever we were playing at the time. And I'm not going to say we didn't play our share of Motley Crue and, and that kind of stuff because we did. Because if you wanted to work, if you wanted to play at a bar or play at a roller rink or wherever you could play, you really kind of had to play that stuff. So we did play that, and it did factor in. It, it all did. All of that early metal, we were all in the same boat. Um, I, it's funny. I look at Pantera. We played. Uh, we did a few gigs with Pantera, and when we played with them, we were the same people, even though they had grown up three thousand miles away. It was exactly. We'd all watch the same episodes of the Brady Bunch, man, and we all were <laughs> on the same page with all of it. You know, um, you know, Dimebag and I sat around and played Kiss songs for three hours. You know, it was like on our first, the first time we gigged because I saw the, you know, the sticker on his guitar, and I was like, dude, man, and I started to play Snowblind from Ace Fairly solo record, and he was like, no way, I can't believe you know that, and then that set it off, and we sat and played literally hours playing kiss songs it was crazy was that at the uh, uh dynamo where you guys uh played with him no we played uh no we actually uh for cowboys for uh um cowboys from hell <clears throat> right before it came out they did a uh, warm-up tour 
because uh, that record actually had a pretty strong push. The label knew it was going to be something good, and they had, they had them ready. So they put them out on the road in advance of the release of that, and that was when we played with them. Or, or it had actually just come out. I think a couple of the gigs it was already out, because initially they were warm enough for us. Uh, they had warmed up for us twice, and I think we ended up warming up for them the last time, which is, you know, which is <laughs> what it was. But yeah. they were great, man. They were an amazing band. They really had power, and they were, they were something else. So that all took place in, in a pretty short order. Uh, getting back to your question, I would say um, once we were once we had so- uh, solidly hooked up with Mike, uh, it was about a year and a half, and we realized Tokyo wasn't going to work. There was a band, there was a German band uh, called Tokyo, and they had, their manager had called Mike's house or my mom's house or somebody's house and said you can't mm-hmm. use our name. Um, so we switched it to Toxic. That's how that happened, and within within a year of us switching the name to Toxic, we had recorded the demo, and we were, we were signed to Roadrunner or Road Racer at that time. Sweet. Uh, what was the uh, scene like at the time, and uh, how did record companies treat metal bands at the time? And what was the whole process of, of uh, writing and recording World Circus? Um, well, again, the scene was pretty cool. It was spotty. It was sparse. Like I think it always is. Metal's funny, you know. It's um, mm-hmm. it, it's tossed up in the weirdest places. Uh, and we had a little scene where we were that, you know, allowed us to kind of really own our chops. We were lucky. We were in a pocket right outside of New York City where there was sort of a hotbed. And, you know, again, bands like uh, Anthrax and Overkill and, and, you know, all sort of came up in the scene, sort of general club scene. Um, so we actually did have a pretty strong scene. There was a very strong tape trading scene going on. We all had, everybody had boxes. I used to have boxes of cassettes. Um, that's actually how I met Tad. That's, that was how Tad came into. Uh, we didn't. I didn't mention that, but that was how Tad came into the band. Um, was through uh, a, another set of mutual friends trading tapes. I met Tad listening to music. Tad and I. Uh, Tad introduced me to Merciful Fate. How about that? Sweet. The first time I heard Merciful, Merciful Fate was from Tad, and I was like, "Wow, this is great!" You know, and I flipped him a couple of things, and my, you know, my love for the Scorpions and the and Priest, you know, obviously gelled with his. And of course, he was always a huge Sabbath fan, and I had grown up on Sabbath. I was an enormous Sabbath fan, so that was really how Tad and I clicked. Record companies at the time were like the startups of the of the, the whole genre. Um, Road Racer was Road Racer; they weren't even Road Runner. They couldn't actually secure the rights to that name in the United States. They couldn't afford to buy the name from Warner Brothers, so that's actually why they used the name Road Racer. Uh, in the States, as long as they did, um, Metal Force, or Mega Force, rather, Metal Blade, uh, all of those labels were as sort of startup as the bands were that they signed, which was what made it so real and mm-hmm. so cool. So the labels were actually run by probably the coolest people on earth, because they were the ones that had ears and said, this is happening, this is what's up, and they were the ones that helped it really get out there. Um, was it not for the Johnny Z's and the Brian Slables? You know, none of this would have happened. So, mm-hmm. total props where props are due. And wherever they went with their companies and who they turned into later on in life is immaterial. Does not matter because truly, where metal has gone is largely due to their vision. So, again, much props to them. How they treated their bands, um, like our own personal experience and so forth. I don't know. I mean, it's a mixed bag. We all make mistakes. You know, when you when you take a bunch of excited teenagers and enter them into the business world and, and you know, throw a bunch of new uh, concepts at them, mistakes are going to be made. People sign bad contracts. Uh, we, we spend our money too fast. We spend money on the wrong things. You know, um, it's part of the experience. But again, at the end of the day, it really is about the art and 
through all that sort of reckless kind of energy, we ended up with an amazing sort of product. I, I really, again, I look back at that time frame and, and feel so privileged and lucky to have been part of it because it really was a revolution in the sound, and it's still going. Um, we were there uh, when that was happening, so I was so, so lucky to be part of it. Um, totally. Recording process for World Circus down it, in Florida. You, yeah, you guys went to nice Morris time. Sound Studios, uh, like the basically the most famous uh, Floridian metal uh, recording studio, uh, yep. you know, known yep. internationally. Yep, yep. And we had options. They actually were willing to send us to other places, and we looked at some pretty, pretty, you know, high-profile studios. But Morris Sound was putting out the shit, and they, you know, they had Nasty Savage, and they had, you know, um, they had done, they had done a record from everyone that we respected from every genre we, we respected. Like, they had done a Steve Morris from the Dixie Dregs, the guy who plays guitar now in uh, Deep Purple. Mm -hmm. Steve Morris is, like, one of my favorite guitar players. He had recorded a record at Morris Sound. Um, Nasty Savage had recorded there, like I said. Corner uh, was recording there. Uh, you know, Scott Burns was there. So that, was, that whole thing was happening. Uh, they had just done... Um, Oh, what was that band? Crimson Glory. Crimson Glory had just recorded there, and Crimson Glory was very sort of Queens-likey in their production, which Mike, the singer, immediately was like, oh, I love that. I love so there was something for everyone in the band from Morris Sound, and it was what made us choose to go there. And the experience, and it's been written a lot, we've talked a lot about it, the experience was exactly what you would have thought it would have been to be in Morris Sound in 1986. It was freaking amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was awesome. Just the craziest, coolest people in the world around. Scott Burns and Jim Morris and Tom Morris are just gods at what they do, and they were then as well. It's, you know, they were born gods, apparently. They, mm -hmm. they probably will live forever. Um, yeah, man. It was, it was pretty outrageous. Yeah. I know uh, uh, Chuck Schildiner hung out with you and Tad and the rest of the band. Uh, he was a fan of, of Toxic, right? Yeah. Uh, that, that's a pretty huge statement. I, I would say that he was one of our good friends down there. He liked us. He definitely did. He thought we were doing some cool stuff. I, I saw a picture uh, of him uh, wearing uh, one of your guys' shirts once. No, he totally did. He, he did. He really, you know, he liked us. And, and again, like you say, he and Tad were very, very close. Uh, they were buds. They hung out all the time. Um, and he was a, a super, super nice, nice guy, man. But with a, you know, I don't even have to say it. Rest in peace, obviously. Very, very sorry to what happened with Chuck. Um, very talented guy. Smoking, smoking, you know, big brain, smart, you know, big picture kind of thinker guy, man. Wrote great songs, played really great guitar, had killer lyrics, had a super unique voice. Just had it down. Knew how to put a great band together. Chuck was the mm -hmm. Chuck was the real deal. Totally. Toxic, like, uh, uh, even on, like, going back to World Circus, like, the guitar playing is extremely very well honed for, you know, uh, compared to a lot of other bands. Definitely a lot of, uh, and, and it gave it kind of a, a definitely a unique flavor. Uh, what what are some guitarists uh, that you're into at the time, and, and um, uh, how do you, like, learn how to progress into that kind of skill level? Um, well, but, you know, people that influenced me uh, at that time were... Uh, I've kind of mentioned him already. Yulu John Roth was probably my largest influence uh, from Scorpions. I, I loved his playing. I loved what he did. You know, when I first started taking guitar lessons, I actually had started on drums, and I played guitar for years. You know, uh, as sort of just somebody who just played guitar. I didn't actually take the guitar seriously until I'd already been playing it for quite a while. You know, and I, I still remember my dad saying to me, like, you know, why don't you 
take some lessons. Why don't you take this seriously and not just, you know, fool around with it? You know, because he saw where it was headed, you know, what happens to teenage people is that they get into a, a scene where they're hanging out with a certain group of folks and, you know, one thing leads to another. And for me, the group of people that I was hanging out with, unfortunately, the kids that were a couple of years older than me were all going to jail. And I, I think my dad saw that and was like, okay, I don't want them to go to jail. So why don't you start playing the guitar? And it's, it's a reversal, right? Because most parents don't do that. Most parents are like, stay off of that thing. Go get a real job. At least in my, my tax bracket, my parents were blue collar. So, you know, I grew up in a working house. You know, you don't need guitar. What's that? You know, go get a job. But my dad was pretty cool. He said, you know, go get some lessons, go take lessons, take it seriously, be good. It doesn't matter what you do, be the best you can be at it, right? Any, any good parent is this good, that advice. So I went out and I started taking, of course, she didn't pay for my lessons. I had to pay for them myself, but that was okay, too, because I learned how to pay for stuff myself. Um, I went to a guy named Lou Ubriaco, who was kind of legendary and still is, actually, from where I'm from, again, about, you know, 20, 30 minutes um, up, up north from New York, northwest of the city. Uh, Lou is, uh, was a, a heavy, heavy shredder from a band called Mighty Joe Young um, and Rat Race Choir, which were very popular in the 70s. And he and another guy, Steve Luongo, who was a super, super talented drummer. And I was lucky enough to be close enough to get to Lou's uh, shop where he taught. I, I didn't have to have a car. I could get to it. I could hitchhike or ride my bike or whatever. I could get to it on foot if I had to. Um, and it's because at that time I wasn't driving. So I, I used to walk to my lesson, and I had this crazy job. I, I would work at night. Um, I worked at a, like an A&PM, a 24-hour market, and I would work the night shift from 11 until 7 in the morning. And after 1 o'clock, you get the last customer, and the next, the next wave starts happening at 5 o'clock. Well, that would give me a four-hour block to practice, and I would sit and I would play my guitar every night for four or five hours, every single night. And at that time, I was practicing a lot. Like I had uh, Hello Weights was a big record for me and I had learned all the songs and I was used to play along to that. And I was playing, you know, I was actually teaching myself the rhythms um, that I liked at that time. That's where I, how I was really getting into it. Um, I think that anyone can play an instrument if they want to. Mm -hmm. I think that some people are more naturally inclined to certain types of playing. Um, I, and I don't think you have anything to do with it. I know there's a lot of people out there that want to really kind of beat their chest. And I think you can overcome a certain amount of inability, too. I think there are people out there that can work around their non-natural talent. But it's very hard to be something that you're not. And I don't think everyone is engineered physically to play at that, at that sort of guitar, um, if that makes sense, if you know what I mean. I think that you are naturally or you are either born to do it or not do it. Um, and that doesn't mean you can't be a great guitar player or a great musician in general and express yourself, but not everyone is going to be a virtuoso. Mm -hmm. I just seem to be lucky because quite honestly, I didn't practice any more or any less than anyone else did. Um, I didn't, there was no secret, you know, food that I was eating. <laughs> I didn't have any, you know, and there wasn't, I don't have that story. I don't have anything special to say other than that. It just seemed to come natural to me. Um, and I was really always kind of like, shy about it because of that. I was almost a little embarrassed by it because I didn't understand it any better than anyone else did. And, and as a young player, I could, I really seemed to be able to peel off some stuff out of nowhere. I mean, honestly, when Pops got that signed, I'd only been taking guitar lessons for a year. So, you know, it was like, it kind of came out of nowhere and, and it just sort of grew from there. Um, so that's, that's that. You know? Uh, how, how was the album received when it was released, and and what was the what was the touring like uh, following World Circus? Um, the album was a mixed bag of re responses. People, it was really positive um, from some people, and and 
people, some people didn't like it as much. Again, metal is a very, very specific group of people. There's a, a regimented sort of acceptance or, you know, disapproval of things based on one's personal taste. And people who were, like, into blacker metal, um, I don't think they got toxic as much. On the other hand, people who were more open-minded when it came to, you know, the rhythms and, and what we were saying musically, I think them that got it really got it. And we had really, really a great fan base that we have actually maintained until today. People who get toxic love toxic. So um, we, we felt that right away. You could feel it at the shows. You know, you could see it. You know who liked you because they were, you know, stuffing the record in front of you and wanted you to sign it and couldn't tell you enough times how much they liked it. And people who didn't like it didn't show up. So that was cool. I guess that's what you, you know, that's when you know you have something. You, you piss off people that don't like it and people who do really like it. So I, I think we always kind of felt lucky with that, that we were one of those bands that seemed to have that kind of chemistry with our audience, you know? Well, and I'm sorry, what was the second part? Uh, the well, 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 where did you guys, uh, I know that the tour, you, you didn't go on a full tour, but uh, where did you guys play, uh, well, uh, especially especially uh, go into detail on the Dynamo, who you played with and what the audience was like? Um, as far as tour and support goes for World Circus, um, obviously that was our first tour um, as a band. Or again, we'd only been really working at it for about a year when we'd gotten signed. We hadn't been at it that long. So um, we kind of went out there, not cold, but we, I would say when we hit the road, we had probably less than 20 gigs under our belt total. So we were pretty, pretty green on, as far as the road goes. Uh, and learned a lot real fast because that's what the road does. Mm -hmm. It, it kind of kicks you, it kicks you around pretty quick. Um, and we had a great time. I mean, it was phenomenal going out. It was just amazing. Our first tour sent us, we went to Europe. Um, we did a bunch of small venues around the countryside that were just phenomenal. And I mean, we played in barns and, you know, pubs and just all over the place. It was just killer, man, to just take, uh, take you know, basically four kids out of, you know, their, their suburban world and drop them into this transcontinental experience. It was freaking amazing. Uh, and then, of course, it culminated that first tour with the Dynamo, with uh, uh, Open Air 89. Uh, and on that bill were some luminaries of that day. Uh, Exodus, uh, Sabbath, Las Rocket, us, um, trying to think of who else was, Candlemass. Oh, I got awesome. to say Candlemass. Was there. I mean, it was, it was, oh, wait, was Candlemass there? I can't remember, dude. Honestly, just to be completely honest, it was that long ago, and the day was a blur. I, I all I can say about uh, uh, open air, you can see the video, is that it was amazing. It was amazing to watch. It was amazing to play. It was amazing to be at. Because if you think back, that was the beginning of big rock festivals. That hadn't really started kicking off yet. And to have that many people in one spot unified and into the same thing was mind-blowing. For me, anyway, I mean, that was the first time I had experienced anything like that, you know. Cool. Uh, and it was, it was really amazing uh, to this day. It, so the day is a little a bit of a blur because of that. It was just almost overwhelming, you know. I still, to this day, 20 years, 25 years later, is still like, you know, wow. Totally. And, yeah, I didn't know that uh, metal festivals are, of course, huge now. They have, like, every country has some, some at least one. And it, it's always huge, and everybody comes out, and it's all a really good time. You know, people coming out with the the sort of you know same you know passion for for heavy metal. It's great. I love it. I love the festivals. In fact, with the announcement here of uh, some toxic happening in 2013, I've already gotten a couple of messages from a couple of different festivals actually asking us if we would consider coming out and playing. And it's a little early for that. You know, it's a little <laughs> early to be thinking of anything like that actually, but. 
um, it's flattering and it's cool to know that, you know, if, if we get this going the way we'd like to, uh, there's probably a place for us to come out and do our, our thing. Totally. And uh, for those just joining, I'm talking with Josh Christian. He's the lead guitarist of the band Toxic. If you don't know them, check it out. It's spelled with a K. Got two great albums, World Circus and Think This. And uh, they also have a few DVDs. Uh, one came out uh, from Displeased. It's the Dynamo Performance. And another one comes straight. I'm not, I might be sold out, but if you want to hit up Tad Leger uh, on, uh, on Facebook or MySpace or anything like that, his, uh, he might have some copies left. So check out the music. Toxic has a lot of progressive influences, and, and certainly a lot, a lot of it stands out a little bit more on, on Think This. Uh, what were the different kind of, uh, uh, like, uh, I don't know, uh, even ju- not even just progressive, but also, you know, kind of fusion-type uh, music that you were into that uh, were helping you to write songs for Think This and e- even going back to World Circus? Um, cool. Good question. Uh, I always, I personally always been a fan of progressive music. Uh, Band UK, Alan Holsworth. Um, later on, Terry Bazio. Again, I was a drummer before I was a guitar player, so I had sat around as a kid and played drums to a lot of that music. I was a big fan of prog music. I'd always liked, and Yes is another huge influence on me. Uh, King Crimson. Um, so <clears throat> I had that in my blood already. It was already there, and I think you can even hear some of it on World Circus. There's, you know, totally. voices. It's pretty proggy. You know, there's, there's some moments where we kind of broke out some proggy even on World Circus. On Think This, Think This was more of a... Um, World Circus was a collection of the songs that we had written with the idea that we want to get signed. Think This was written with the from the perspective of we are already signed. Um, it was more serious. It was less random. Again, when we're trying to get signed, we're putting out you know, a certain energy hoping to attract, right? We're, we're really, again, we're trying to get our music out there. And that's a very different energy than your second effort, which is, okay, now we're signed. How do you follow that up and progress? And that's kind of a hard combination. A lot of bands stumble on the second record. It's not easy to do. Um, and I think a lot of people, honestly, if I'm really honest, I think a lot of people thought we stumbled on our second record when Think This came out. In perspective, there are a lot of people that like Think This more than World Circus. Um, and they're typically prog fans. They're typically people who are more interested in the music aspect of it as opposed to the energy. Uh, obviously, Think This did not thrash nearly as hard as World Circus did. Uh, I had also sort of begun my friendship with Ron Jarzombek at that point. He and I used to sit and talk on the phone for hours. Uh, the control and resistance was out and World Circus was out and, you know, we were both kind of sitting home waiting for the labels to put us out on the road and we would we'd become friends. I forget how. I think, you know, so he had our tape or we had his tape and we ended up talking on the phone because there was no internet at that point. I think we pen pal back and forth a couple times and then we ended up talking on the phone and he and I would sit for, you know, a couple hours at a time and trade guitar stuff back and forth. And for me, you know, that was huge because Ron is, is a sick, again, big brain. Mm-hmm. I was talking about Chuck before having a big brain. Ron Dozombek is a big brain. Uh, that guy is thinking totally. in, in an omnispheric sort of way. He, yeah, he just came out, he came out with like an iPhone app, which is just, uh, you know, absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> he's insane, man. He's nuts. Yeah, you can mix up his stuff. He's, he's just crazy, you know? Um, what, what other... Uh, kind of guitar influences uh you know because obviously uh, even even world circus you know it, it may not be progressive but i think part of progressive is also you know uh kind of skill level uh, uh talk you know go, ron jar zombeck is obviously uh, another a person that you mentioned 
Yes. Yes. Um, guitar-wise specifically, okay, I, I see what you're asking. Um, guitar-wise specifically, specifically, well, I, you know, Yves was an influence on everybody at that point. I did come out of that neoclassical school. Um, it was kind of hard to avoid at that time because that's really what was pumping. Again, mm-hmm. Lucky Gosh was at the beginning of a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Guitar Shred was something unheard of before the mid-'80s. Shrapnel Records, Mike Varney, Shrapnel Records, Paul Gilbert, Greg Howe, that whole guitar explosion, Cacophony, J- Jason Becker, uh, uh, Marty Friedman, all of those people, that was all at the same time we were happening. So there was sort of a rush, and I think that, I, I think credit, given what credit is due, I think that Ingve was really responsible for a lot of that rush. I think that he showed people that, hey, man, you, you know, you can... You can break this sort of speed barrier that had been imposed before, and not to take anything away from the giants that everybody stood on the shoulders of afterwards, but, you know, Ingve stepped it up, and then it has stepped up aggressively since then to the point where we're at now, where, you know, again, kudos to Ron Jarzombek, just to jump back to Ron Jarzombek, who, who has absolutely stayed current and is every bit as much an influence and, and a contributor to that as anyone else, any other artist. Um, the level of guitar playing now is insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's just nuts. But, you know, all the people that I just mentioned, they were all an influence on me, all those guitar players. Of course, um, I'm trying to think. There weren't very many trash bands that had serious guitar players. Uh, Alex Skolnick and I, really, from the American side of things, I mean, Cacophony, I don't know if you could call Cacophony a thrash band. I don't think they really were. So if we're really going to say, you know, thrash, that genre that was thrash speed metal in the late 80s, I don't. I can't think of anyone else. Detente. Um, other than that, I can't really think of anybody else that sort of did what we were doing. We were the only two guys that did that. Um, and I always totally respected Alex's uh, playing, but I don't think I was influenced by him because we were coming out at the same time. Same thing with Dimebag. I think he's an amazing player, but we were the same age. We came out at the same time, so I wasn't. In, I was influenced by what he was influenced by. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Totally. And talk a bit about. Uh, uh the lineup changes in, in, in Toxic at that time and, and going back to Morris Sound, you know, being with, you know, the absolute, you know, you know, engineering, you know, wizards that the Morris brothers are. Yes. Well, but think this again uh, was a second effort. It was the second effort for Tom and Jim with us as well and Scott too. Uh, they knew us from the first record. They knew what to expect from us personality-wise. So the whole meet and greet was over. The honeymoon was over. The second record was much more about getting to work, and we really did work. We, those were some really, really long sessions, really focused. Uh, I think Tom specifically. Tom had more to do with Toxic than anyone else. And Tom, Toxic was kind of like a pet project of Tom's. He really got us. He liked us. In fact, he used to feed me all kinds of prog music when we'd be there. He gave me a couple of cassettes. Like He turned me on to Gentle Giant. I had never heard of Gentle Giant before Tom Morris. He gave me a copy of Octopus and pretty much changed my life. Um, so we, he had a real soft spot for Prague, and he was the guy that had re- recorded Steve from uh, the Dixie Dregs. That was his project with Steve. So he, he kind of had an ear for Prague music to begin with. And when we got there for Think This, I had a lot of, I had come along in my writing, and the band had come along in our gelling and our ability to play things. Uh, we were, we were more sophisticated in our writing, uh, and Tom really latched onto that and we went to town with it. It was really a lot of fun and it was pretty intense work. We were serious about making a good record with Think This. Definitely. Uh, and, and talk about, uh, you guys added another guitarist and, uh, and uh, Mike yep. uh, Sanders was no longer uh, the singer of the band. Yep, yep. And I'm sorry if I'm leaving gaps in that. You know, we've talked about this a bunch, so you know, it's kind of for me at this point, it's, I forget to mention that stuff. Yes, Mike left at the end of uh, World Circus. Uh, 
you asked me before how we were received. We were received really well. Mikey, unfortunately, was not received as well. Mikey is what I call him. Mm. Mikey is Mike's nickname, Mikey. Um, and it must have been really hard on Mike to, to read a lot of what was being said about him in the press. It was not favorable. Uh, you know, Mike's power metal style vocals over our sort of speedy mishmash of influences just kind of put it beyond people's ears. And which I have to be honest with you, and I'm going to throw this out there for my brother because I love Mike and he's just the greatest guy in the world. And I love his voice on world circuit. I love his voice. Um, I didn't think he was saying any higher than Alan Kekio or Jason McMasters or, you know, from Watchtower or, you know, um, any number. I guess there's no real reason to actually finger names. I don't want to do that. That's not cool. But mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like, he was certainly not the only high-pitched singer out there. Mm-hmm. Um, there seemed to be something extra to Mike's voice that pissed people off. I never really understood what that was. Because um, he really wasn't the only guy doing what he did. I don't think his voice was any more grating. Than, and again, I guess I just said I wasn't going to do names. But I got to throw this one out there. Joey Belladonna from Anthrax. I like Joey. He's cool. I, I love Anthrax. I think they've, they've really contributed to, the, to the, the genre of metal over the years. But like in terms of annoying voices, Mikey's more annoying than Joey Belladonna? I don't know. You know, I never got that. I, I can never figure it out. Mm-hmm. But anyway... Then at the end of World Circus, when we got to done with the tour and it came time to do the next record, we did the demos for Think This with Mike. And it was a combination. Mike, it wasn't Mike's best performance. His heart wasn't in it. Again, he had been sort of beat down by the press. And the label really poo-pooed it. They, weren't not, they were not feeling it at all. They did not like his performance. Um, and they kind of were ready to drop us. They were ready to let us go. And we were ready to quit. We were like, you know what? You don't want our singer. We'll leave. We were ready to bail on it because Mikey was our, our brother and we weren't, you know, that was... Mm-hmm. That was a big part of the energy was that we were such close friends. We really were close. Um, and Mike actually kind of stepped up and was like, you know what, man, I'm not feeling it. Don't, don't bail on the label. Do another record with him. I'm going to move on. And he did. And he stood. He went out to California. And it was definitely more than bittersweet letting him go. We, we all kind of had to take a pause on that. Mm-hmm. You know, life moves on. And uh, Charlie, who sang on Think This, Charlie Sabin, was a local guy. Uh, he'd grown up a couple of school districts away. Again, we're suburban people, right? So we base everything on school districts. Mm-hmm. Um, Chuck was from a couple of school districts away. Mikey was actually from Jersey. Mikey was the, the, from the farthest away. Tad, Brian, and I were all from one, we were all from more or less the same place. Um, and Chuck was also from actually where Brian was from. So we were kind of geographically very close. Mike was the only one that was from far enough away. He was about an hour and a half away coming out of Jersey. But Charlie was a local guy, um, had a great voice, could always sing, never any question about his voice. He's, he's a great singer, um, good guy, good, a lot of creativity, a lot of, lot of good ideas, and he just seemed like the right fit. I mean, honestly, he just was like the right guy at the right time. He was local. We had talked to the singer from Heathen who had just quit. The singer, I forget his name now, but the singer from the first Heathen album had just quit. And we talked to him a little bit. There was talks of that. He was out in San Francisco at the time. We were talking to, to Marty Friedman about producing the second record. We almost went out to San Francisco to do think this with Marty. Um, and that's where the heathen uh, singer connection came in. There was talk about, you know, if we're going to be out there recording anyway, maybe we could get out there a couple weeks early and work this guy in. But we, tra- we did a tryout with Charlie, and Charlie, you know, came in and, and rocked out the, the World Circus stuff. He did a great job on that. He could really cut it. Um, he was able to do Mikey's highs, but he was also had his own voice and was, you know, had, a, I don't want to say a better range, but he displayed more of a range than Mike did on the stuff. And um, he made the grade. He, he did it. We, we popped him in and, uh, and worked out pretty well, actually. 
uh, John Donnelly. Uh, I needed another guitar player for all the crap that I was writing, and we were writing so much, so so much heavy, intertwined sort of, you know, musical knots, you know, um, musical term polyphonies, you know, polyphonic lines where, mm-hmm. you know, the bass player is playing one part of the chord, I'm playing the next tone of the chord, and the rhythm guitar player is playing the third tone of the chord. So the band playing in unison is actually forming one chord. Okay, um, and you just can't do it with two guys. Micah, Brian, and I, as much noise as we could make, and we could make a lot of noise, um, we couldn't swing it ourselves. So John really fit in. He came in and he filled out the, the arrangements, and he was a great guitar player. He was an excellent rhythm guitar player. He was a good lead guitar player. He, he was younger than us. He was, uh, I think John was only like 18 years old on the Think This, on the recording of Think This. At that point, I was already 21, and Brian was like 20. You know, we were a couple years older than him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so Tiny came out and was a great guy and, and really held his spot down and was a lot of fun on the tour. It made a huge difference on our live sound, and we were much, much more polished uh, on that second tour as a result of John and Charlie. I have to say that. The World Circus Tour was more fun. We had more fun, but in terms of our performance and how we played, although if Tad was on the phone with me right now, he might disagree with that. <laughs> I don't think Tad really liked the performances on the Think This Tour that much. He, he and Charlie kind of used to laugh horns a lot. So. Um, but, yeah. There you go. Uh, and, and speaking of the tour, King King Diamond had hand selected you guys to tour with him. Uh, obviously, Andy LaRocque is one of the is in the same league as you guys with you know heavy metal and melodic and skilled soloing. What what was it like touring with King Diamond? Uh, that's a great question. And you know, Andy LaRocque absolutely is every bit the guitar player than any, anyone else is. He's such an amazing musician, uh, good songwriter too. Uh, I, the reason I didn't mention them before, I didn't mention King before, is because King, I never considered King in any way with fate or by himself a thrash band. He, mm-hmm. he did not, there was no thrash there at all. King took power metal and gothic and took it to an extreme. He had his own thing. He really did his own style. He truly, truly had a unique style. He was a very unique guy. Um, and we were lucky. That was a phenomenal tour. Uh, it was a great exposure for us. Uh, it was a definitely a different audience. I don't think a lot of King's audience were necessarily toxic listeners, and it exposed us to a lot of people. Um, our sales showed that. We were selling a lot more records on Think This. Um, and the experience was phenomenal. Working with Andy personally, myself and I, Andy LaRoque, I have a way of making friends with other guitar players. I always did. Whenever we did a gig, I would always like sort of pal up with the guitar player and pick their brains. It's kind of how I do things. Um, and he and I used to sit around in our hotel rooms and practice. Everybody else would be out getting <laughs> and chasing girls, and he would, and I would be back in the hotel room rocking out, you know, <laughs> solos back and forth. Uh, and and speak about uh, some of the gear you were using uh, for uh, both World Circus and Think This, because I, I I think uh, Tad told me that uh, uh, the gear that Chuck was using on the Human record was uh, because of one of those uh, rigs. Yeah, yep, Chuck was digging my sound. Um, when I came out to do World Circus, I had this real sort of uh, funny little rig that I had put together. It was actually a, a Gilly and Kruger ML2, which were these little cast steel amplifiers, practice amplifiers that had three-inch speakers in them. And they had this really intensely compressed um, distortion chorus sound that they produced. And if, if you want a good example of it, the best example of it is the... Uh, that uh, the Daytona record, the first record there, um, was I can't think of the name of it, Resist, or uh, I can't think of the name of it, but the first Daytona record had the GK sound better than anyone else I had ever heard, and I was really influenced by the sound. I loved it. It was great. Uh, and so I went out bought an ML2, and all of the World Circus songs had been written with that, and I ran that through a PV CS800 
power amp, which is really a PA power amp. But I, in my experience, I find that the cleaner the power amp is, the more it catches or carries of the original preamp. I know a lot of people swear by Teed Power Amp. We're getting into guitar player talk here, but that's what you asked me. Um, I know guitar tour, uh, tube amps are preferable, and they're the, the transient response. I mean, there's technical reasons behind that, and I agree with it. I, I love a tube amp. In fact, I only play through tube amps now, but um, they're not reliable, and they, they're, they're funky with wattage. You know, you're traveling to Europe. Your system is used to 110, and you jump into 220, dude, man, and bulbs, you know, uh, tubes pop. Um, things get weird. It just, they're subject to all kinds of weird stuff. Solid state is bulletproof. So I had this old PDCS 800 power amp that I used to run through 412, four 412 cabinets. I had four 412 Randall cabinets that I used. Um, they were Celestian loaded. Uh, and I would put one on either side of the stage and I ran it in true stereo. And when I was running the MLK through it, I used the stock MLK chorus, which really had a way of throwing my guitar sound back and forth between left and right of the stage, which really filled it out. Because at the time, we were a power trio with a singer. It was just me and Brian, so I needed to fill in that space. So that's how I did it. I would run a cabinet on the other side of the stage with a heavy chorus, and it would really, again, spread it around. And the CS-800 was so loud and had so much punch that when I hit my low E string, like, you know, I, I'm not going to say I invented, you know, the chunk, but at, like, I had the chunk as good as anybody, man. When I would, like, mute that low E string and clunk on it, man, it just, you could feel it in, in the back of your skull. It was just, gunk, <laughs> gunk, 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 and it was awesome. Um, <laughs> and Chuck got it. Chuck was like, oh, that's sick. How did you do that? What is that? So, you know, that was, I think he copied me on that. And then when this came around, yeah, my technology came along. Uh, technology in general was starting to pop at that point. I had a couple of endorsements. Um, ADA actually sent me a copy of their MP1. They sent me the NAM show MP1 that they had been using, and it was dope. Um, and I recorded the world's or uh, think this album with that MP1. That was what I used on that recording. Um, and at that time, I was using. I think I had my Mesa at that point. I think I was using the Boogie, the Boogie Power Amp at that point. I think I can't remember for sure. I may have still. Been, I at one point I had a classic 120. I was using a. I had moved to a tube power amp. And I was using a classic 120. But you know what? It's really funny. On this, on the Think This Tour, I went back to the CS800. I went back to the BB for the tour just because, again, it's so reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I recorded, I think, with the classic 120. I, I, think, I think Think This was actually the 120. And then I bought the boogie after that. So, so that's what it was. And, it all, again, with the same 412, 4412 Randall cabinets. Sweet. Yeah. Uh- Go, and I want to actually talk about some of the uh, subject matter uh, of some of the toxic songs, starting off with TV Preachers. Uh, they're, they're a subject of many of the songs, both World Circus and Think This. Of course, the era was wrought with you know snake oil salesmen like those guys. List some of your uh, favorite televangelists from the era and their uh, crazy sh- shenanigans. Um, their shenanigans is exactly what it was. Ken <laughs> Say and Jim Baker were my favorite two to focus on because they were just so modeling, you know, the way they look, that, that woman, you know, she would just get out there and, you know, blubber with her, you know, eight, you know, three inches of blue eyeline, you know, eyeshadow going up into her eyebrows. They were like clowns, you know, literally, they literally, she looked like a clown to me. And you're right. It was proliferating at that point. You know, America was going through like this crazy regressive thing, like it is kind of now actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just just confluence of Christian right fundamentalism sweeping over the nation. Got to remember that was during the, the Reagan era, and um, I don't want to get into an economic discussion here because it's not metal. But um, 
there's a guy named Milton Friedman, and Milton Friedman had Ronnie Regan's ear. And Milton Friedman was an avid, uh, uh, ardent, uh, free market capitalist, but he wasn't really a free market capitalist. He was a corporatist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we ended up with uh, was a corporatization of the United States. That's when the, the real drug war begins. That's when we start filling our prisons with with working class people. Uh, that's when we start, you know, charging people to be sick, and suddenly our health care is, you know, exceeding, you know, 19% of inflation. Uh, it's insane, and it came directly from that time, and the Christian right were really part of that. They were, they've always struck me, and I still wage, <laughs> to this day, a war on, on that fundamental wing of uh, the religiosity in the United States, especially. Um, they are materialists. To the core, and they are in, in no way godlike in their uh, lifestyle and in what they preach. They exploit, uh, they waste, and they are charlatans, basically. And I'm not a religious guy, but I have a I have a huge bone, and you probably tell that my voice changed as I talk about this. Um, I have an issue with people who come across righteous, who, who use false righteousness to subjugate other people, to put it on other people, you know. Mm-hmm. Come and join me, brother. You will be saved and send me your money. Mm-hmm. you. You know what yeah, I mean? Like exactly. that, oh, that whole trip always, always made me irate. I just couldn't never tolerate it, you know. Um, and, yeah, it manifested itself all over the book talk records, toxic records. I was all about it. But, you know, I want to say this because I'm sort of ambivalent about my, my relationship with the, with the maker, right? I, I know especially anybody who knows me from Facebook or has read my lyrics over the years, Sometimes I'm talking about God being the only answer, and sometimes I'm talking about there is no God. And if I can put any clarity on that for people, and I don't think you can in the sound bite, so there is an intelligence that we all share. You can call it common sense, or you can call it God, but there is a shared wisdom. People are as individual as their fingerprint as the snowflake, and yet we all have so many of the same traits. Our humanity is innate. We are the same species. You can define that any way you want. If you want to make that be a little man in the sky who's watching over you because you need a big brother to look out for you and that's what makes your day okay, man, I got your back on that, if that's what it takes. But don't make that be for everyone. Don't make that a one-size-fits-all ideology that you expect everyone to cop to, because that I will not do. I will give you your space I, I will I will defend your space, in fact. I will go out of my way to make sure that you can have your space. But don't put your yoke on me. That's your trip. It's not my trip, okay? And I feel the same way on really, I'm very libertarian, actually, in my thinking when it comes to that. Don't put your extraneous nonsense that you have going on in your life or in your mind on other people. Let people live their lives. Let us all live our lives, and let's be respectful of one another. I don't want to go Gandhi on you here, <laughs> but it's a really simple philosophy. You don't have to be a genius to get this concept. Mm-hmm. You just have to treat people the way you want to be treated, and that is what Jesus said. I am a follower of Jesus, because Jesus made sense. I don't know if Jesus ever stepped foot in the church, and I can't tell you for sure that Jesus is the Son of God. I don't know if I believe any of that either. But I'm pretty sure that Jesus, the man, absolutely was saying something that I could relate to, and that was treat people the way you want to be treated and love one another. And anything after that is mind control that someone else laid over to control someone immediately around them, including the Romans and everyone else forward from that point. We are all still stuck in this Roman thought process. And exactly. it manifests itself. It manifests itself in my in my life, man. It's not just my music. It's my thinking. It's my philosophy. 
Um, it is a very close subject to me, and I, I don't want to beat anyone over the head with it. I can't, I can't be, I can't say what I just say and then be guilty of doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I put it out in my music because you can turn my music off. If you hear something that's objectionable and you're not feeling it, then you turn it off and put something on that is. I didn't make you do anything. Exactly. But if I can throw, if I can plant a seed and I can put something out there to run contrary to something that I believe is an innate evil that has been causing suffering for, you know, a millennia, then yeah, man, I think the onus is on me, especially as I get older. The onus is really on me to do that anywhere I can, really. Um, and I do. And my music is, is a vehicle for that. And I don't make any bones about it. It is, it is, I do have an agenda. That's my agenda. Totally. And, you know, the problem with uh, making morality a matter of law is that it requires a policeman with a gun to come to your house and say, you need to put that joint down or you can't uh, marry someone that's of the same sex as you. And, you know, they try to say that it's our moral righteousness that gives us the ability to use force when really they're, the, you know, they claim morality. But you look at like Jimmy Swaggart sl sleeps with prostitutes. So you, always the people that try to you know, claim righteousness are always the most immoral in their real life rather than what, you know, they put on uh, television. Absolutely. It is, immora it, is in, it is immorality at the core to have someone stand over you with a club and say, do it this way, mm -hmm. no matter what it is, unless I'm, unless I'm not hurting you, and I'm glad you used Pot as the example, because Pot is the perfect example. Mm -hmm. Pot doesn't hurt anyone. It may hurt the person who's using it, and there may be an issue with secondhand smoke, but both of those things can be mitigated. There are te there's technologies now that we can get around these things. There is no reason. There is no suffering in it. It is a victimless crime. It is not a crime. Victimless crime is an oxymoron. If there's no victim, there's no f***ing crime. Mm -hmm. Okay. Exactly. So, like I said, I can, I can go nuts with all of this stuff, man. You know, this is really near and dear to my heart. Yeah, and I, so, actually, I happen to believe that if you know it were legalized, that most of Western medicine would become obsolete. Most uh, uh, industries would have some serious competition from industrial yeah. hemp's applications. That you know, yeah. a lot of yeah. people stand to lose immensely if this were to be legalized. Preach, preach it, brother. That's it. That's exactly right. You know, there, that's the church right there. That's the church of reason. <laughs> the, 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 the reason it doesn't come out is because it would put an end. To this travesty that we've been that we've been stumbling along with now for 130 years, you know, uh, absolutely. Biofuels are where it's at. Hemp is extremely potent on so many levels. It's such a, a wonderful plant. Totally misunderstood, man. And you know, listen. And again, you and I have talked so much on. Uh, you know, we've gone back and forth. You always jump in on my post, so I know where your head is at. I've, I've seen how you think, and, and we totally are aligned on all of this stuff. Uh, and you know what, man? I, and I'm kind of a buzzard at this point. You know, I'm getting a little bit up there in age. But I'm still very young-minded, and I find more and more more people in your age group are really coming around to this. That old is going out, and they know it, and that's why there's so much fuss going on. That's why there's so much fight happening here, because these f***ers know they're on their way out. They're going, okay? Mm -hmm. We are replacing them. We are, we are going to overcome. Ultimately, sustainability will outweigh their stupidity and their greed and their short-term gain. Um, and unfortunately... A big part of all of that, just to round it back up to where the question came from, God plays into that. Mm -hmm. the organized religion plays to that deeply. Um, it is the, it's the semblance that they use to organize people who have a trust in the Maker. Christians, Jews, Muslims are, in, are genuinely good people innately. Again, I go back to the innate because it's what's at our core. As our core being, Christians are there because they want to do the right thing someone telling them that they're doing the right thing when they're not, in fact, doing the right thing, 
there's a psychological disconnect that goes on. And when you relinquish your personal authority, when you relinquish your responsibility to yourself and to what you know is right and let someone else tell you what is right based on a scripture or based on whatever, you have lost something. You know what's right and wrong. You're born with that humanity. You know that it's wrong. But if someone else is in authority and you accept them as authority and they tell you it's okay, you will go against your own reality to fit their reality. And religion serves to create that mm-hmm. which we that that specific school of thought comes from religion. Religion teaches us early on, gives us the imprint early on of authority of the parent-child relationship. We can never truly be mature, responsible adults as long as there's the parent God above us overseeing everything we do, forgiving us, punishing us, being the father. Inserting the father that doesn't exist, the hyper-reality father that isn't there, destroys our natural humanity. You are naturally good. You are not naturally bad. That is the lie of religion. And how did I get back to that? I'm not sure. (laughs) You're listening to KKSM Oceanside, AM 1320, com. How did I get back to that? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, we were talking about TV preachers, but, uh, you know, like, like, no, like, like you said, like it, it, that's, that's totally the reason why. And, you know, uh, that's probably, the, you know, the start of the war on terror is, you know, demon, creating instability in that region. Uh, yes. Certainly, uh, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not just the Israel or a Jewish thing because we also uh, support Saudi Arabia who hates everybody else in that nation. So it's really kind of just a mixed bag of irrationality. And, you know, I think the top of it is military industrial complex just scraping off, you know, uh, uh, you know, profit off of funding both sides. You know, I was watching, I, I, I firmly believe, you know, you know, this is all going back to how the Federal Reserve was created that, you know, if we were to audit the Fed, we would find that they would be funding both sides of World War II, just like all the banksters were uh, fun, uh, doing business. Even like uh, George Bush's uh, came from a German-born Nazi descendancy, and they were like laundering money for the uh, Nazi army. And you know, GM was like dealing with the Nazis, and it and it and it you know kind of all goes yeah. back to yeah. how they just that's benefit all true. from killing. That's all yeah. documented. None of that is conspiracy. You mm-hmm. know, for anybody listening to this who's who has now said, look, listen to listen, listen to these liberal. Okay, it's, not, it's that's all documented. Mm-hmm. Everything you just said is really true. That's that's one hundred percent true. And I, I have to be honest with you. I have my suspicions because of that. This war on terror that's gone on for the last decade. There is a finite amount of money that's traveling the surface of the earth at any given time. We know what the currency flows are. We know how we can account. That's what accountants are for. We can account for what money there is on the face of the earth in circulation at any given time. We can account for it. So, in order for the United States to spend a trillion dollars engaging an enemy out in the desert. Physics, just the, the science of the universe, would tell us that someone else must be spending a near-equivalent amount to repel us. Yes? Mm-hmm. If we are spending this much money to do this accomplishment, and we are actually fighting someone, if we are actually fighting someone, mm-hmm. then that opposing force must be spending somewhere. It may not be apples to apples, but they must be spending a gargantuan sum to keep up with that trillion-dollar expenditure. Are you telling me that we can't find out if we spending that money? Mm-hmm. Are you telling me we can't follow the money trail? Really? Follow the money is the oldest thing in the world. Of course we can. You never hear that question. No one talks about that at all. And why don't they talk about that? Maybe because we're funding both sides of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. the reason it's, it's a trillion dollars is because we're paying for both sides of that. Yeah. I don't know that. I mean, that's really conjecture. But is it impossible? Absolutely not. It's totally plausible. And to say that it's not is where the, 
to, to accuse someone of being paranoid and a conspiracy theorist and all that is really part of the ploy. It is stupid to not think that that could happen because, of course, it could happen. If it has happened, it can happen. Um, and we're back to rational thinking here, which is, which unfortunately is not really part of the conversation. There's not a lot of rationalism going on. What you're saying is actually quite rational, but can very easily be turned uh, on its head by people because the mainstream is really taught to believe that anyone who talks like that. I, in fact, mm -hmm. Alex Jones did this thing last week, right, where, where he got on the phone or got on that show with what's that guy's name? Uh, Piers Morgan. Yes, Piers Morgan, right, right. And he went nuts. And, I, you know, I think Alex Jones is a dubious character in the spectrum anyway. I don't believe in Alex Jones. I, mm -hmm. I never really have. I, I think Alex Jones is actually... Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more partial to Jesse Ventura because, you, know, you know, he's not sensational. He doesn't jump the shark. Uh, not like the way Alex Jones does. And I don't know about Jesse Ventura either. I don't know about any of them. None of us can. But I thought specifically, and again, we're not really talking about music anymore. I don't know if you're going to want to use any of this, but it's an interesting conversation. And I know you're into this stuff, so it's cool. Um, I thought it was very interesting that Alex Jones got out there and did what he did. Alex Jones created a wall now. For anyone that, for anyone that suggests now that taking automatic weapons or semi-automatic weapons away, because automatic weapons are already away from us, taking semi-automatic weapons away from people and, with, and assault rifles and bulletproof vests away from people and not taking them away from the police forces, anyone who suggests that that's the setup for a totalitarian state will now be called an Alex Jones. Mm -hmm. Oh, dude, what are you, like Alex Jones? What are you, an Alex Jones nut? That's what that performance really, I believe, could have been. I think because it was so outrageous and it was so sort of pretentious and weird the way he got all He does that excited thing that he does. I've seen him do that before, you yeah. know. And there's something really false about the way he gets worked up. It really strikes me as being super, super plastic. Um, and now, now there's a title for people when they say, hey, man, do you think it's really a good idea to give up all of our, our, all of our stuff here if the cops still have it? I mean, does that make sense? Does it make sense to have? In the meanwhile, Homeland Security has bumped, dumped billions and billions and billions of dollars, my Carl Sagan impression there, has, has dumped billions of dollars into the policing agencies around the country. Um, communities, man, towns, counties, states. All of these have been bolstered hugely in the war on terror and now have become completely militarized. Their training, their equipment, um, their surveillance, all of it is straight-up military. Why do you want to de-gun the populace when you've got a completely militarized police force? Is it really that much of a stretch to think that they could become totalitarian? And I'm not saying that Obama's a socialist, and I don't think that George Bush was the Antichrist. I don't buy any of that shit. I think it's all political theater. I think but they're, I they're both Wall Street puppets. Right, exactly. But I do have a real problem with a freestanding, completely fortified military fighting force now. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, man, you know, with the level of training now that the police are provided with, and the cops are good people, man. They're just local folks like you and me. They're just taking a job. And next thing they know, they're in this program where it's good guys and bad guys, mm -hmm. where everybody in a handcuff is a bad guy. It doesn't make a difference who it is. They become sensitized as well. And if you know the Stanford Prison Experiments, which I love to post all the time, you know that giving someone a gun and not letting someone else have a gun takes the person who has the gun and turns them into a monster mm -hmm. in very short order. It only took a week in that experiment for those guys to start sexually abusing those, those prisoners. Mm -hmm. Okay, one week. One week. And these were mature, nice guys that were pulled off the street and picked for their normalcy and for their, for their regular guy sort of attitude. And within a week, they were monsters. Mm -hmm. Okay, you do not want a sitting force fully armed 
and not having a, a response to that mm-hmm. uh, at the public level. I, I and, and I know that puts me at odds with all of my liberal and green brothers and sisters, but i got to say, I, I think an armed populace leaves a, a balance in place for an overly armed Military police force. I've seen plenty of uh, uh, blogs by uh, le- leftist thinking people that you know, that, you know, kind of like the revolutionary, uh, you know, the right to revolution on, on the part of the people, and and uh, you know what we were talking before of kind of like where this is all leading. Uh, I wanted to bring up you know how Homeland Security is you know trying to turn like you know trying to turn your neighbor into thinking that oh you might be doing suspicious, so let me call you, call somebody up and give them yeah. an anonymous tip on something. You know, that's totally subjective. That is up to my, you know, understanding of, a, 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 you know, and it's up to the whim. Yeah. And and yeah. really, it's kind of just, you know, it, uh, we're, we're like, you know, d- you know, uh, Homeland Security Orwellian, just kind of yeah. picking up people off the street with the NDAA and everything like that. It, it's Orwellian. It really is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that that gets thrown around, but it's, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Brazil, um, Blade Runner, these future movies, man. I, you know, you want to know what the future is going to be? Read science fiction. I really feel like we're living in the middle of that. And I dread that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I could sort of tie this back into the toxic thing, actually one of the things that's really pushing me to get something out here is that I have so much of this going on in my mind that I, I kind of need a vehicle for it. And toxic was always such a great vehicle for me lyrically. Um, I, you know, the record's going to be packed with this. This is really what it's going to be about. I, I said to Mikey the other day, because Mikey's not where I'm at philosophically. He's got, he's got his own thoughts and his own feelings, but he, I don't know if he's as radical as I am, and I don't know if he completely subscribes to my thought process. And I asked him, I said, dude, man, how are you going to feel about singing these lyrics? You know, are you going to be cool with singing this shit? Because, I mean, it's going to be pretty heavy, and it's going to be from my perspective. And he was like, yeah, I don't care. It's cool. It's cool. And I, and I hope. I hope that is cool. I would be even happier if he was into it. I would be even happier if he read it and said, yeah, this is where it's at. You know, I, some things that I find really personally important, I may sing them. I don't know, you know, because I really want these to be words of conviction. I really, I'm serious about it. It's, it means something to me, you know. So. And speaking about uh, some of those lyrics, you know, in the, in the Toxic song, especially with Think This is about, you know, how the media, kind, uh, you know, it's just so kind of dumbed down. Everything is just cat fashion shows or, or no questioning of what what the government does and you know speaking of how that ties into today modern uh times like i and nbc actually for for me tried to have me arrested me and a few people uh went you know uh, took after the uh, green party thing for occupying the presidential debates so i went with a gary johnson sign a megaphone you know completely peaceful but i just started you know talking you know some realities on who's behind the commission on presidential debates and what the real the federal reserve and the bankers have to do with you know controlling the money of where it goes in politics and all of a sudden they have some police officers coming out and telling we have a noise complaint and so i put the i put the megaphone away then they come back and they just start watching us and uh until we leave and it was just really eerie and uh and i know nbc did it because i saw their guards or from the building you know lurking around the corner when the cop was talking to us and laughing and you know it's just and then walking back towards my car i see homeland security uh, near the federal building in san diego has a freaking rock star sized tour bus like they're literally you know uh being cows off of our tax dollars and of course you know money printed by the fed you know it's just kind of really building up and and a lot of uh, our san diego police are cross deputized uh, for both you know Homeland Security and even the, you know, war on drugs, they, you know, we have state police that are supposed to act under state law for medical marijuana, 
cross deputized and now they get to raid uh, uh, they get to be federal agents and raid uh, medical marijuana dispensaries all kind of really uh, growing up to be this really eerie police state and it's it's mm-hmm. it's it's and it's scary yeah well listen it's always been about us and them um, and just even a little bit of history not and, and recent history will show you that I mean if you get prior to the New Deal and you look back at the Gilded Age it is exactly what's going on now. Um, we've got a very, very small minority looking to control the majority, um, gaming the system to their favor, using the police and the military to do their bidding. Actually, the police and the military are actually inducted into the whole process. We no longer have a government. We have a corporation. Mm-hmm. We, by definition, mm-hmm. we by definition are a fascist state now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really are a fascist state because the corporation has... But, and, and, and we are, as a nation... We are so disconnected from our own reality. We live in denial as a culture, and it's horrible. It freaks me out. People will, to this day, just do not understand that they don't have any say anymore. I still, in this past election cycle, people say, well, you've got to get out there and you've got you to vote. Yes, you need to vote. You do need to vote. I'm not minimizing or diminishing what a vote does. A vote is important because it, it gives you a sense of empowerment. It puts you in to put into play, it makes you feel like you've got some say. But, of course, it's totally symbolic because of the Electoral College. It really doesn't mean very much at all. It's going to go in the direction that your state goes in. And through the process of redistricting, they've managed to completely corrupt the system. So we really don't have a vote at all. The vote is an illusion. That's first, okay? And we know, just by virtue of the way things are run, that the money in Washington is all that matters anymore. These people mm-hmm. are on the dole. They are being paid to legislate in favor of the industries that are paying them. Very mm-hmm. simply, too. And this all gets complicated. There's an obfuscation that goes on where this all seems to be much more complicated than it is. And for people who aren't into this at all, it goes right by them because of that. They think that it's more complicated than it is. It's very simple. Mm-hmm. The corporation gives money to the elected official. The elected official introduces a law that benefits this corporation in some way in its myriad ways. I mean, it could be any, anything. Who knows? Mm-hmm. It's environmental. It secures them more market share. It gives them a shot at more land. It's endless what the, what the benefit is. And then that legislation gets written and it gets voted on, and you and I never hear about it. 40, well, how many is it? 4,500 laws a year or 23,000 laws a year? Too or whatever. many. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's an insane amount. You and I have no recognition of that at all. There is absolutely no accounting at all. You and I have no way of knowing what that is unless we want to go and spend every waking minute trying to keep track of it. Who's going to pay your bills? This is intentional. Who's going to pay the electric bill? Who's going to pay the rent? Who's going to pay for the food? You don't have time to do that, so it goes on unabated. You have no choice about it. You are stuck here, and it's going to go on. My brother, that is fascism. Mm-hmm. You no longer have control of your government. You no longer have control of where your tax dollars go. You no longer have a control of your environment and what your environment produces mm-hmm. and provides for you. You deal with their poison food, you deal with their poison air, and you pay for it in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, you pay for it with your time. You pay for it with your life. You get sick and you pay for it with your cancer. Um, you get antisocial and you pay for it in their jail. Um, you get poor and you pay for it at their war. It doesn't matter. We are paying for it. It is on the backs of us. Totally. The triangle is perfect, Okay. And it's, and it's total, total barbarism, man. It is as exploitive as possible. Again, just reading the uh, People's uh, History of the United States again here by Howard Zinn. I read it once before, and I kind of skimmed it. It was at a different point in my life, and now I'm a little more focused, and I'm reading it again. And the first chapter is 
about Columbus and the Indians and what went on. And mm-hmm. here, man, the barbarism that this country is founded on is unbelievable, literally a hell on earth. And, of course, Columbus, the classic false Christian, mm-hmm. the, the classically false Christian, used Leviticus time and time again, the book from the Bible, used it time and time again in his writings and in his letters back to Spain, justifying what he was doing and even bragging about it, even bragging about the generosity and the vulnerability of these good people and their generosity as he literally hacked into them. And, and we, as people who are sensitized to a certain amount of violence through the media anyway, that doesn't mean anything to us until you read the actual accounts of what went on. And, you know, they talk about, you know, they would sharpen their knives and just to make sure that the blade was sharp, they'd grab some 10-year-old little girl by her hair and, and carve a piece of her arm out to be sure that the blade was sharp. You know, wow. just little stories like that. Let's put the horror in perspective. Let's put a face on this, okay? Because that's where it all comes from. And our nation is based on that. Our nation is founded on that. I do not hate America. I love America. I love the, principle that Amer- the principles that America says it stands on. But we're the not there is at all. It, it, at all. And we've never even made an attempt to be there. You and I get to experience the Constitution in, in the visceral way. We live it. Working class people, we live that. We have to experience that. At a certain point, wealth and privilege exonerates people from the Constitution from God's law, from all laws. Money, him who has the gold makes the rules. That's the golden rule. So, Actually, what's, what's his face? Uh, the, one of the guys that were, you know, uh, one of the uh, main people behind the Federal Reserve said uh, for the uh, Mayor Rothschild, you know, get, yes, uh, I, I care not who makes the laws of the land. Mm-hmm. Show me who controls the money. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, uh, what, what you're talking about, but you know, like how think this is about the media controlling everything. You're, you're not going to find out that every single dollar of tax goes to pay interest on the debt owed to the Federal Reserve. Like, there's a reason why there, why uh, a certain few uh, uh, groups of rich people don't pay any taxes is because all our tax dollars are going straight to them, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and then they just print the rest to cover the funds of government. So it's really just a giant Ponzi pyramid scheme where they're going to take everybody's wealth and concentrate it to themselves and, and then dole it out slowly and you know it's just it's kind of like a but their credit spree i think will come to an end when this all comes to fruition uh you know uh, unless you know they they just scrap the dollar and and go you know with some new sham currency uh but Mm -hmm. uh, you know it's all it's all a giant you know scheme well what we have is state capitalism now we don't have real capitalism doesn't exist there is no such thing as a free market and I'll tell you, you know, and again, you mentioned Gary Johnson before. I like Gary Johnson a lot. And we talked about that. You mm-hmm. and I, um, I don't believe that we can have a free market. You probably know that anyway, right? You know, you know what my, my take is on that. Unless we redistribute resources and we break up the oligarchs, there's no way to have a free market. The big fish are going to eat the little fish. And really, there is no market without some regulation. There's certainly no market without a central currency. And a central currency automatically denotes a legislating body because someone has to preside and administrate that currency. Ergo, there's no such thing as a free market. There will be a centralization in the chain. It's just inevitable. That's why market alone is not enough to structure a society around. You cannot structure a society around production uh, and and uh, uh, market, and uh, it, it, doesn't, it just doesn't work. You cannot do it, and I don't care what anyone says. I know there are a lot of people that want to believe that, but the reality is it cannot work. And I think the main reason for that is, I think the real reason that, 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 that most people don't ever stop and consider, I had a conversation with a guy from a bank 
not that long ago, a couple of weeks back, a representative who was getting ready to retire and had worked at a, a bank called Community that I have here in my part of the country. I don't know if they're anywhere else, but they're here. And Community Bank has actually weathered the whole storm pretty well, um, the financial storm. And here's a guy who's getting ready to retire from it. And he's, kind of, he's talking about his pension. He's kind of, you know, we're starting to have a little bit of a conversation. And he immediately goes into, you know, disparaging the poor. You know, the people that are spending his money. I'm sick of paying for these welfare cheap. Blah, 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 blah. You know, he starts to chew on his neck. And, you know, it's all I can do to not, you know, smash the guy around. Because, you know, you work for a bank, okay? You of all people. Your entire existence is predicated on a lie. Banks are a lie. All our fiat currency... The only thing that backs that, there's no gold anymore, is the production of the people. Ultimately, our currency is based on what you and I do, what we make. Bernie Madoff never made a thing in his life. He moved money around, okay? Hedge funds managers and people like that, they don't make anything. They move money around. They're not productive people. They're the parasites. Any person who could sandbag or save a billion dollars, let's say you've got an equity and you're worth a billion or two billion dollars, you have to be a sociopath to have that much money because you're never going to be able to spend that much money. And that money, that money could do so much good for people that are suffering. So for you to actually warehouse that energy that way says a whole lot about you as a person. I like to be comfortable and I like nice things, but I don't want to have other people suffering so that I can do that, so that I can have that. And I especially don't need a multi, multi-million dollar buffer to be sure that my kids and my grandkids will be able to do that. Mm-hmm. That's a dynasty of luxury based on the suffering of other people. All money is is a metaphor for suffering. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. You're going to go out and you're going to work and you're going to produce, which is going to enable someone else to sell, which is going to generate what we call money. Money is an illusion. There is no money. Do you understand the money? Are you familiar? And I know you are. I can tell just from what we're saying. Do you understand, like, the concept of the money multiplier? Do you know that? Um, Fractional reserve, 10%. Yeah, well, yeah, how, uh, how, yeah that's, that's how, is, that's how the, the Fed is, uh, you know, engaged. they loan out more uh, money than they actually have, which, you know, correct. puts people in debt and just creates, uh, but they're the ones that are, you know, they're, they're the bad loaners. They're the ones who are loaning money that they don't have. If I was, you know, a bank and I looked at the Fed, I wouldn't, you know, loan to them on any rational basis. Of course not. Of course not. Well, their charter, the Fed's charter is actually is, uh, is constitutionally added. Their mm-hmm. charter comes from not their reserves, but from our productivity. Mm-hmm. Their charter is based on that they're going to lend us money at a 10% to 90% ratio. So that's the irony of all this. Not only are they giving away nine dollars. Okay, they've got one dollar in reserves. They give away nine. They lend out nine dollars. They just lent out nine dollars that they actually didn't have. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then they and then they collect interest back on that ninety percent extra that they already put out. It is such a double double screw, you know. And again, mm-hmm. most people don't know it. I started to tell you the story about Banker Bob here the other day, mm-hmm. and his name really was Bob. Banker Bob had never heard of the money multiplier. He did not understand, 66 years old, banking for 38 years, did not understand the basic concept of fractional reserve. Mm-hmm. Very, very simple. You have $1,000, and I'm going to say it real quick. You have $1,000 in reserve. You can make a $10,000 loan. I come to your bank, Alex, and I borrow $10,000 from you to buy a car. I go to the car dealer. I hand him that $10,000 check. You had $1,000 in reserve. You're now allowed to lend me $10,000. I take that $10,000 check, which 9000 of it is tough. I give it to my car salesman. My car salesman goes and deposits it in his bank. That bank 
it deposits it as cash. Now that bank has $10,000 in its reserve, and it can lend 100 out from the $1,000 that it began with. That next check at $100,000 goes into yet another bank and gets to lend out a $1 million, and then $100 million, and so on and so forth. That's the money multiplier. There is no debt because there is no money. It's all bullshit. There's nothing there. It is completely an illusion. And when I said that the bank of Bob, man, dude, I swear to God, the kid, the guy looked at me like a puppy. He twisted his head to the side and he blinked. He was like, what? I was like, are you telling me you don't understand this? You've never heard of it? And he's like, no, I, I don't know anything about it. Either he's a liar or he's a fool or he just doesn't want to know. But when I told him about it, he said, well, that's an oversimplification. No. It's not an oversimplification. That is exactly what it is. And that is what the Fed is doing with our country. So when we talk about balancing the debt and, and economic freedom, there is no freedom. You cannot have freedom in an economy because the economy is based on debt mm-hmm. right off from the get-go. It's every nine cents of every dollar or 90 cents of every dollar comes to us in the form of debt before the interest gets piled onto it. It mm-hmm. actually costs us money to, to borrow the money. It's freaking crazy. And this is the spot where I usually find myself really agreeing with hardcore right-wingers. This is where the left and the right converge, because we can both see where the falseness of that is. It's where we go after that, where the divergence really kicks in. Mm -hmm. They really want to go back to, and you may actually be part of this group, and we're closer than you think if you are. Most people want to go back to a purer form where the market drives it. And again, going back to what I said before, I don't think we can do that. I don't think we can get away with the market because the market has profit built into it. And as long as we're profiting, we've got the greed motivation. And I don't care what anyone says. I don't write music to make money, man. I never did. And maybe that's why I'm not a very, very rich guy living in my mansion and my yacht. But the reality is I never played music. I never picked up my guitar to make money. But I never thought of that once. I am pretty darn sure that that, uh, Einstein didn't do what he did to earn money. I just don't think he did. I don't think that guys like that, like me, like you, like creative people, I don't think we think in those terms. I think we do what we do because we're driven to do it because it's our human spirit that wants us to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have not world. been paid one cent for doing any of the things that I do, uh, radio, music, or otherwise. You do it because you love it. Mm-hmm. You do it because it's creative and you provide a service and you give people something to listen to and to think about. And you, you create, brother. You create. You leave the true legacy. The money is air. It's a false legacy. There's nothing there. The creativity, art, is our only real manifestation. The building that I'm looking at, I'm sitting out in my car this whole thing, this whole time I've been sitting on my car shooting it here with you. Uh, I'm looking at a building, and it's, it's a nice structure, and it's brick, and there's some metal, and there's some, some glass. and This came out of somebody's idea, out of somebody's mind. This was an idea. This was a drawing. This was a concept. And this was made for money because I'm sitting in front of a, a, a strip mall. It's still a creative thing. Now, the mind that created that would have created that without the strip mall needing to be here. They would have still been pushing. They would have still been designing. They would have still been placing bricks on top of each other because it's symmetrical, and that's how their brain works. And they would do that no matter what. We would be productive with or without the finance attached to it. Mm -hmm. The idea of the minority profit mechanism is slavery, and it's old, and it's it's done, man. It's done. Mike Rapper, uh, uh, what's his name? Mike Rupert. Um, you ever see Collapse? Have you ever watched that? Uh, no. Check it out. If you get a chance, everybody, anybody listening to this, get a chance, go watch Mike Rupert. Michael Rupert's the guy that actually broke the story about the, uh, the drug ring during the Bush years. Go to um, Alameda there. Um, 
Oh, God, into the airport in Arkansas. Oh, oh I forget. Whatever. Um, he broke that. That was him. That was his story. He was the guy that did that. He's an L.A. cop, and he's real kind of, you know, salty dog sort of old guy. Um, he says that there, we're past peak oil. This, this is all a lie, that there's no more room for any isms, not communism, not capitalism, not any of the isms. We're about to be faced with a really, really ugly world in a very mm-hmm. short order, and if we don't stop this primitive thinking of ours, we're going to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. And I think he's right. You know, I really believe that. I think all of this is just stalling what we really need to do, which is to get down to how we're going to survive as a species. I've got kids. Having kids makes you think about all this stuff a lot more. You know, it, being a parent really does help you focus your mind around this. And for me, you know, it's a legacy thing here. I don't want to see generations coming after us and enduring this. It's 60 degrees right now, Alex. I'm sitting in Syracuse, New York, which typically in the middle of January, January 14th, whatever the date is today, normally would have two-degree weather might be my high, three degrees, four degrees. I mean, we have very, very cold temperatures in the winter and typically five, 600 inches of snow. That's, I mean, I'm in that part of the world. That's what I get. I'm in shorts. My window is open. My leg is literally out the window. I got the seat kicked back. I'm talking on the phone in shorts, okay? Something's up, man. The weather is acting, you know, the weather is, re- is a response to our industry and our, you know, inability to manage our, our greed and our climate. And this is just, I really think we're right at the beginning of all this. I, I think it's just going to get worse and worse, man. Mm-hmm. Totally. Unless, unless, of course, we do something about it. At the end of the day, I really am still an optimist. I do believe we can get a handle on it. I think, like I said before, this is the old guard. They're going out. I just hope we can get them out in time so that we can bring it back around because this is ugly, man. You know, I'm tired of looking at, you know, mm-hmm. Barnes & Noble and Michaels and Pier 1 and Raymore and Flanagan, and Danny's Kentucky mm-hmm. Fried Chicken. This is no kind of life. This is not, this is, where, where did this landscape come from, man? Mm-hmm. This is insane, you know? Totally, and, you know, they, those wouldn't exist if they actually wouldn't have laws to protect them. And, and okay. you know, the, uh, you know uh, and, of course, you know, people controlling the flow of credit, you know, through this Federal Reserve economy that we have. Some people get it, some people don't. And it's and it's unfortunate. Rather than you know, I was talking, I was interviewing a guy who who has a hemp seed uh, food uh, uh, production company, and you know he's he's talking about how much burden he has because of established law that uh, was set up by established companies that you know really you know is designed to you know have a few like billionaires rather than uh, you know people planting a hemp seed and then uh, trying try or fail. You know they could fail. You know the possibility of failure, but. You know, something as productive as a hemp plant, you know, could make somebody, you know, enough for a comfortable living. You know, so you have a bunch of people that, you know, uh, get to benefit truly uh, from their labor rather than right now where we have our, our, our labor stolen from us through just inflation from the Fed printing everything that it buys from, you know, the fractional reserve loaning out money that they don't have. Uh, really the root of why, you know, uh, you know, we have, you know, the, you know, the 1% versus the 99% and it's even less than 1%. It's like, you know, yes. people, you know, the, you know, like a hundred or so people and even less than that uh, when, you know, for example, like the Bilderberg group with the, they have, uh, you know, the group and then they have the, uh, you know, executive committee, which one of the, I, I believe one of our senators is a part of uh, one of the Rockefeller senators that we've had from the Rockefeller family is on the executive committee of that group. So literally less than 1%. Yes. I didn't know that, but that totally that makes perfect sense, of course. But I do, of course. Bilderberg is absolutely real. Bilderberg, you know, there's again, that's another one of the ones that gets conspiracy thrown at it. But of course, yeah. that's real. That's they're totally that's mm-hmm. totally legit, you know. Definitely. 
And 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 uh, and going back to like I I I like to differentiate like uh, I, I don't consider uh, uh, like libertarian or anything to be right wing. That's why you know I don't I, I found myself more in common with uh, you know the Greens and everybody else than you know Republicans or or Democrats that kind of people that abuse you know the the term market really mean corporate controlled market you rather than you know people it, which is pretty much corporations existing as an individual above the law rather than you and I engaging in voluntary consensual behavior uh, you know right. where, that, that is to mutual benefit otherwise we could you know consent to leave that uh, engagement right, with the mutual a, exchange the mutual exchange is completely missing mm-hmm. there you know I mean it's, there's nothing mutual about it it's, mm-hmm. it is so one-sided and, yeah. and top heavy you know and that's because you know these corporations you know they they are legal individuals, and then they get to, of course, they, they have people lobby through the revolving door of Congress to pass laws that instead of a mutual exchange, there's a policeman with a gun in that exchange, uh, whether on our personal levels or uh, going back to, you know, the top of all finances with the Federal Reserve. You cannot use another currency. That's why, you know, like it would be way cool if we had, you know, like all the different localities experimenting in. Uh, alternative currencies, whatever that may be, and you get to pick and choose. And if you still want to stick with this crappy dollar that we have, by all means, you know, pay ten bucks a gallon or of gas in ten years, or not even ten, two years from now. Uh, it's it's really right. where we're going to be headed is massive inflation. Well, we could be, we could be. That's one possibility. And uh, you know, inflation is. And again, this is. A, we could go on about this. This is one of those conversations where you can really, really get carried away because you know. And I and I'm with you actually right there when it's funny to, that you sort of separated your libertarianism from other what you would consider right wing groups because because they, ab- they actually they try to take the term and then abuse it like like Paul Ryan or Glenn Beck like all these phonies like try to and then they make the you know the corporatist. Old or like right art right wing arguments for you know uh, which is really you know they're 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 paid to do that you know they're uh, just like Obama is you know supposed to sound like a liberal at the podium but you go behind a closed door and he's you know giving tax credits tax breaks to GE and Goldman Sachs so they end up paying zero in taxes. Of course, of course, Goldman Sachs runs the world. Inflation, of course, is not a real uh, what inflation actually is. And again, you know, there's some, I, I'm not so sure that a lot of people do. Inflation is a, is a false term. Inflation is actually the devaluation of your currency. Mm-hmm. You're not paying more for something. Your dollar is just buying less of it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, again, it's one of those false sort of view kind of things. It's been, it's been taught that this is inflation, that the price is going up. In fact, the price isn't going up. The value of your currency is going down. And when exactly. you start to look at it that way, that gives you an entirely different feeling of what it is. People can get their heads around the price of things going up because there's more people. There's a lot of reasons for prices to go up, and people are trained to understand them and accept them. But it's very hard to understand why your currency might be worth less. And we, and we don't learn that because we don't want people looking at the Federal Reserve. Uh, of course. Right. You don't want to know about that. You don't want to know about what causes fluctuations in currency and how freaking you know, people, uh, entities out there make unfathomable fortunes when there are bumps in currencies, when currencies drop and dip and other, you know, it's, it's an insane game. It's, mm-hmm. it's once again, but what are they really buying? There's only so much money that you can have. It's not money anymore. It becomes something else. Mm-hmm. And it's not even power because there's only so much power you can have as well. It's something else altogether. It is dominance. It is absolute dominance by the few over the many and they're privileged there at this point, you know, we have created uh, a, a many centuries long aristocracy in this country and really Western Europe 
Uh, but now we've pretty much sold the uh, the franchise globally, and central banks and fractional reserve banking is the standardized uh, form globally. And the whole world basically mm-hmm. uses it. There's a couple of countries here and there that don't have central banks, but everyone but uses fractional reserve. When they don't, we go to war with them and make them. And we go to war with them. That's exactly <laughs> right. When they don't have a central bank, that's the first place we go to. You know, mm-hmm. We're still trying to get into Syria. They're still trying to get into Syria, man. It's been 10 years. I remember the PNAC. I remember that. They took that PNAC website down. Uh, it's a big new Brzezinski, but his, his chessboard was Secure that entire region, including Iraq, Iran, Syria, mm-hmm. you know, parts of Pakistan, all of that. That's all part of that same grab of that land to secure that piece of oil there. For what purpose? There's only one purpose. There is only one purpose for that. Mm-hmm. So them to control the energy, control everything, man. Energy is really at the bottom of it. It's And, and it's our uh, reliance upon the specific type of energy, which, again, you can actually go right back to Rockefeller and finger for that. Rockefeller made it so his product was the only thing that anyone would use. Mm-hmm. Uh, Diesel was competing with him. You probably know the story of Dr. Diesel, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, with the biofuels, you know that, right? How mm-hmm. do you know that story? Oh, uh, well, I know. Of course, he, you know, uh, went for laws that completely banned or like at least made it, you know. Uh, prohibition. Yeah. Prohibition, yeah. brother. Yeah. yeah, Rockefeller was responsible for prohibition. It became illegal to have any kind of mash at all. You could not do any sort of mash. You could not have that refining process where you actually started to ferment mash. And that's how you make diesel, right? Right. And and that consequently, filling stations that used to carry diesel and gas are primarily peanut oil. Is what diesel engines were originally designed to drive on could no longer carry this mash peanut oil because it was illegal thanks mm-hmm. to Prohibition. And by the time Prohibition ended, diesel fuel was out. And the distillate of diesel fuel that comes from petroleum is actually much less clean than the biofuel that it was originally designed to run on. Mm-hmm. You don't need all the filters. You don't need all that crap. Peanut oil burns as clean as it possibly could, and its emissions are, like, completely benign. Um, and Dr. Diesel lost, and Rockefeller won, and we now see what the legacy of the oil man was. Mm-hmm. We are here now, okay? Mm-hmm. And, again, it's just like Columbus with the Indians. Our country is based time and again on these ruthless models, these ruthless principles, we eventually lionize and create as heroes, or, or try to. I mean, you know, Rockefeller and Carnegie and DuPont, and these guys all went way out of their way with endowments and, and you know, charities to create this illusion of them being good, you know, corporate citizens, when in fact their charity was just a manifestation of their absolute greed and the guilt for their greed, you know? Exactly, you know, and, and I know you. I know you know. Yeah, and guess who was sitting on you know at that meeting in uh, nine, in the early nineteen uh, tens on Jekyll Island where they drafted the feds? It was Rockefeller, uh, yep. uh, Morgan, uh, Warburg, and and Rothschild, and and yep. not and Warburg, not anybody yeah, from Congress. Warburg. That's right. Paul Warburg was a was a big hand in all that. Although his name is not nearly as well known, mm-hmm. but yes, and his brother. Uh, what was it? Didn't his brother manage? Didn't his brother do something for Hitler? Wasn't his his brother like a manager in the Gestapo or something? He did something. I know Paul Warburger's brother was involved in. Well, I know they they had a lot to do. Of course, they stole a lot of Nikola Tesla's inventions, and you know that has to yeah. do. That actually has to do with you know a part of a George Bush's descendancy, uh, where you know his his German family actually German born. Some of them engaged with the Nazis, and I think it was a. Uh, I think it was his father. I, I was just watching Oliver Stone's history of the United States and. Uh, they were talking about how uh, Prescott Bush, I think it was George Bush's father, you know, were, uh, laundered money for the Nazis. Yes. Ain't that something, man? Yeah. <laughs> it's 
Third, listen, this is an awesome, awesome conversation, and I know it probably doesn't, I don't sound like much of a heavy metal musician when I talk <laughs> like this, but I'm really, to be honest with you, I would much actually rather talk about this, because for me, the music is almost like a biological function. It's sometimes hard for me to talk about because it's such like a natural state for me that I don't, I, I can't really sit around and theorize on it because it's just something that I yeah. do. You know, it's weird for me. It's like, you, you know, talking about music sometimes is difficult because mm -hmm. I don't really think about it like I think about this. This, I actually engage my, like, my cerebral, you know, portion of my, my being around. Whereas with the music, I don't so much. It's kind of just natural, you know? So, so uh, let, let's shift back to music a little bit. Uh, what, uh, so, <laughs> so you mentioned, uh, you, mentioned uh, uh, you know, Toxic for 2013. Um, talk a bit about what, how the reunion started out you know, the kind of complications with the docu documentarians that have a freeze on the footage, um, uh, the, 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 the new album, and uh, what, 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 what are you thinking about for 2013? Okay, cool. Um, well, the, the document, uh, documentary um, back in 07 um, was actually what was the impetus or the sort of the uh, inspiration for the reunion, which was sort of ill-conceived, and that's why it didn't happen. Um, you know, you never, you never want to put a rock group together around a documentary because you end up being Final Tap, okay? <laughs> and, I, you know, it really was. It was just a circus. Um, it got thrown together, and it was, everybody was so excited. But, you know, we're, we're always surprised by the level of sort of love that people seem to have for us, though. You know, people really genuinely toxic, for whatever reason, just occupies a place in certain people's minds, man, and they have a genuine affection for us. And you can really feel it. It's, it's an awesome feeling. i got to say, man, it's got to be, I mean, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world to have experienced that because I don't think that that's something that everyone in a lifetime really gets to know. Somebody really connects with you through your art like that. It's super, super positive thing. So, you know, 2007, if nothing else, really kind of made me aware of the fact that we had that type of, of um, friendship out there with people. I didn't know that, uh, and it was really great to find. So 2007 absolutely served the purpose, but the band was not ready to come together. Um, we were all in very different spaces. My kids were still little. Um, hard for me to put a lot of focus into the, into the band when I was providing for my family. It just wasn't the right time. Mm -hmm. So fast forward five years. Um, six years now because we're 2013, but it's really about five years from when we were doing the documentary still. Uh, it's not quite, it's not quite fully a six, six years. Um, this last year I have spent a lot of time writing. I've been writing a lot of music. Uh, I was working with Tad with Lucer Tola. You mentioned Lucer Tola early on. Um, Tad has got this great doom band that he's doing called Lucer Tola, which is really, really good. He's written some freaking amazing songs. Um, it's a great concept. Uh, it, it, it's a perfect merger of Tad's favorite kinds of music and his favorite passion, horror. Yeah, Tad oh, is yeah. a huge horror <laughs> buff, and it's just a perfect merger for him. I sang on the Loose Rotola deck. Um, I helped him facilitate the recording. We got together and we brainstormed, and uh, we we did a really great recording, and I'm getting him the wave files actually today. It's, this is good timing conversation-wise. I'm kicking him the final files today so he can actually print that up and he's going to be pressing it and we're going to have that released. Awesome. I am not going to be able to continue with Lucer Tola. I know you didn't ask me about this, but it yeah. kind of figures into what's going on with Toxic. Um, I am not going to be able to continue with Lucer Tola. And for no other reason other than um, logistically, it's about impossible. Uh, Lucer Tola is a live and performing band um, where all of the members live five hours away from me, four and a half hours away from me. Mm -hmm. 
I, I just can't really make the practices. I don't have the time. Uh, it's too much of an expense. Uh, you know, it's a hundred dollars round trip every time I go and it's a whole weekend and I work a lot. I run a business. I've got, you know, I've got a family, you know, I, I do a lot of things. Um, I'm starting this guitar business now. I mean, I got all this stuff happening. I just could not give it the dedication that I needed to give it to make it real. And I don't want to, and, and I'm really saying this from the bottom of my heart. This is no nonsense. I, I told Tad as much. I love Tad. Tad is my brother. Okay. Family. I've known the guy for 30 years and I love him like a brother. I don't want to his band up. I don't want to screw his band up by not being able to, to give it my all. And that's what it needs. Cause they're going to go out and play live. They're really, really serious about getting out there and doing it live. If I'm going to do something live, if I'm going to dedicate myself and put myself into something, me now, personal, Josh, if I'm going to put myself into something that heavy-duty, it's not going to be Lucifer It's going to be toxic. I mean, toxic, is, it's still, it hasn't finished. It hasn't finished itself. It hasn't been able to, to really – I still feel that there's a door to close, that there's a chapter to write. Uh, there's something more that toxic needs to do. And – as much as I would love to do Lucertola, if I didn't have Toxic in the back of my head, I probably would have kept doing that. But in a way, i got to thank Tad again, because Tad was really inf influential in the early stages of Toxic for helping me shape the direction of it. Tad, once again, kind of pulled me out of my shell here and made me realize that I need to do something here with Toxic on a personal level. So it really did kind of start with me. I, I just kind of had sort of a snap decision, uh, and I said, you know what, I'm going to do Toxic. I want to do Toxic again, and I started calling everybody and you know, kind of lighting a fire under them because everybody's got their own lives going on. But, you know, everyone's pretty excited to do it. I don't think Tad is going to be able to make the trip with us. Um, Lucertola is, is, as mentioned, is kicking, and he's got his thing going on. He's not playing his drums as much. He's playing a lot more guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, and, frankly, the stuff that I'm writing right now is actually more intense um, than Old Toxic. And what I mean by that is, is that it's, it is more technical. Um, it is faster. Um, it's more angry. Uh, my my sort of me personally as a writer, my um, energy has matured a lot. And when I was a kid, when I was a young guy writing the stuff for Toxic, I was only 19 years old, 18, 19 years old. I, you know, there was still a lot of optimism and joy in my life. I didn't, I hadn't lived a lot yet, and times were different. After another 25 years now, um, I've had a very different experience. And again, I'm still young-minded. I'm still here on the ground. I'm still living it. I'm still real. Um, but my, my, my venom is got a lot more acid in it now than it did when I was a kid. And my re writing is reflecting that my writing is pretty intense right now. Toxic had almost kind of a buoyancy to it. There was a bounce in some of Toxic's music. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that bounce will be present this time around. I don't know. I don't, I'm not as happy a guy as I once was. I'm much more intense. Um, and that may work out. That may be really cool. People may really relate to that because I think a lot of people are feeling what I'm feeling. Everything you and I just talked about is right on the tip of a lot of people's tongues. So maybe it's the right kind of vibe for the time. You know, I can totally. only be what I am. I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be fake. I don't want to come out and write something that I think somebody wants to hear. Hey, I'm going to formulaically here, going to write this thing that people are expecting. Nah, that's not, I never did that. That's never been my trip. I'm going to do what I do, you know? Um, and I, I really hope that people still like it. I hope that I still meet and greet and, and make people happy that like it before and maybe even in the process add a few new friends along the way. No matter what, it'll be honest. It's going to be intense, like I just said. Um, I expect a very high caliber of musicality uh, from everyone. I think it's going to be a real, a real uh, contribution to the sort of prog metal world. I think it's going to be proggy. Um, that's it. That's what I can say about it now because it's, it's as far along as I am. Do I know if we're going to tour? I don't know. I haven't gotten that far with it. I don't even really have a drum worked out yet. 
I'm programming all the drums myself for the demoing process. Um, Brian's got the songs he's working on them. Mikey's got songs he's working on them. I'm talking to Charlie. I might get Charlie in on some of the vocals. I'd love to get John Donnelly involved. I really want to try to get all the old toxic people involved. That was my original idea. Um, but I don't think John wants anything to do with it either. His life is busy, you know, with his wife and doing what they do. So, um, I don't think he's, he's feeling the toxic thing. So it's looking right now like me, Mike and, and Brian for sure with the possibility of Charlie jumping in. Tad may change his mind. Uh, he may see what we're doing. He may hear something that may really kick his ass and, and get him inspired because he loves toxic too. Mm-hmm. My, my affection for Tad is totally reciprocal. I know that Tad totally values and respects me as much as I do him. And if I come out with something that's really balls to the wall, he's liable to get excited and want to be a part of it. And he can be a part of it no matter what. Even if we found the, the world's greatest drummer, you know, Bobby Jarzombek comes and plays on the next Toxic record. If Tad stood, stood up and said, dude, man, can I do this? I, you know, I'd have to let Tad have the gig. So that's, that's the, you know, that's where it's at with that. You know, Tad would, has first dibs. Um, but looking like right now, I don't think he's going to make it. Definitely. That was a long, that was a long friggin' answer. <laughs> no worries. And, and, and you, I mean, you guys were uh, working on new material for a third album uh, called uh, Blood, Guns, and Oil. Am I right? Uh-huh. You know, I think uh, uh, what was going on was that, you know, Tad might have been playing on a, on a few tracks. Um, uh, are you, um, what, what's, uh, what, what do you have uh, so far? That, that has already been written, and um, uh, also, uh, uh, what's the going to be the recording process like uh, uh, once you find a drummer? Um, what 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 can people look forward to um, for you know uh, how many songs? Uh, uh, any anything else? Right, right. No, no. That's cool. It's cool. It's all you know. I. I... <laughs> Every time you ask me a question, I go, I don't, I don't want to say, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, but I do. I kind of do now. Um, uh, let's see. Well, uh, I'm not planning on using much of the stuff that I wrote um, in 2007. I might use the track Blood, Guns, and Oil. And I keep saying I very unanimously. I want everyone to know that's the only reason I'm saying I is because I'm the only one sitting in the car right now on this phone call. Um, we, band collectively, are not really officially an entity beyond phone calls. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm generating music. These guys are excellent players. We have great chemistry because we've stayed friends. Ergo, the band is functional at that level alone. I'm not worried about us being able to play together. It's never been an issue. We'll be able to do that. Um, but at this point, for me, as the songwriter, as the principal songwriter, um, I'm not really feeling too much of the shit that I did in 2007. I like it. It's okay. Again, like I said, I, it's okay. I don't know. It could just be, you know, a songwriter disease where your new stuff's always better. I don't know. I, I'm not feeling it as much. The newer stuff that I've written over the last year, um, I feel packs a much harder punch, is much more in the direction I want to go. Um, I can't really say of any bands that I say, if I say it sounds like this and it sounds like that, and that belittles what I'm doing. It's just an honest effort. Um, so, you know, it's, it's new. It's new and it's different, and it's, and it's heavy as hell. It's really, really, what I will say is that it's heavy, and it is technical, but it grooves pretty friggin' hard. Um, and, uh, it's, it's actually heavier than old toxic, which again, I hope is a good thing. I hope that people can, can still relate to us. Um, it's, it's definitely more brutal. The recording process is right now. I have a studio in my house that I've built over the last few years. Um, went from being a little spare room to now being actually something pretty legit. Um, I'm doing most of the tracking right now uh, myself. I Over the last couple of years, I've been doing some producing, and normally when I produce, I, I work with singer-songwriters, and I play all the instruments on their stuff. 
I'll go in and I'll program the drums and then I'll do the bass and the keys and the guitars. You know, I'll play all the, play the stuff. If I had a kid, I would play the kit on a lot of it too, but I don't have a kit. So I have to program the drums. Um, but it's usually coming out of my head. So, and, and kind of used to be the same way with toxic. I just didn't have the technology with the, with the old formation. I just didn't have the technology. I'd go in and show parts and then we'd work on them together. So now what I can do is I can actually throw my parts down shoot out the files to the guys, they listen to them, and then what I'm going to do initially, <clears throat> again, this is all initial stages, I, my thinking is um, is to get them one at a time to come and play their parts and then actually have that serve as sort of a final demo, so like kind of a two-stage demo process. Mm-hmm. Demo from Josh's brain to other guys, other guys do their parts, we reform the demo, then sit back, look at the demo, make any tweaks we want to do on it, and then do the final recording from there as a group. So by that point, we should have our drummer in line, and then we go in a room and we drop it from the ground up like a real band does. We play the songs live, the rhythms get done live, the bass, the drums, and the rhythm guitars all get tracked live, uh, and then we do overdubs on vocals and guitars as need be, which is the standard way you do a recording. Uh, I definitely do want to catch the live energy of a band, though, so it will not be um, you know, sort of studio sterile Josh solo record with other people jumping in where he was. Uh, I really want the band to gel as a band on the tunes. So there will, there will be a, uh, a warm up period to that where we're going to have to rehearse a little bit. And, you know, we've got our work cut out for us. It'll be what it'll be, but there's certainly enough time to do it. We're talking about January 2013 right now. That gives us a whole year to work on stuff. Cause I kind of threw it out there just very loosely that something in 2013 will happen. That means we could drop something, you know, December 31st, and it would still be 2013. So we, we've got time to, to come up with something real. Um, and that's it, man. We're going to hone our craft and see if we can't come out with something that's so f-ing metal that, you know, it just kind of redefines what toxic is and, and, again, keeps the people that used to listen to us still happy. And that's it, man. Just make it as good as we possibly can, which is all we've ever really done. Definitely, and you know that's that that's definitely you know because uh, well, with the you know advent of being able to shoot somebody a file like sort of like the way blotted science does, you have all their guys living on you know different parts of the earth. Even with a you know they had a new uh, drummer, I think from uh, the Netherlands, it makes yes. it so much easier to get everything together. Yep, and especially with music like we do, not that we're anything like blotted science, but in a way they are sort of similar genre-wise in that they're you know heavy arrangements. It's actually a great way to work on this kind of material because what happens, you know, the inspiration in progressive music doesn't actually happen in the recording stage so much, although it can happen when everybody's together. But it's, I think you get more, um, at least for me anyway, the way I approach prog is very different than the way I approach like rock and roll or if I'm doing blues. Like if I'm out playing blues, I don't even want to be warm. If I'm going to go out and do a blues gig, if I'm playing guitar somewhere and I'm doing some blues, a, a show where I'm playing a bunch of blues, um, I don't even want to warm up. I want to hit the stage cold. I want my hands cold, and I want to plug the guitar in and start from scratch. And there's something real raw about the way you approach that. Well, prog music isn't that. That's not how you do prog. You do prog, you focus, you get it together, you really iron out the parts, you really think it through, you really make a statement. It's art. It's constructive art. You know, it's a different kind of approach. It's not visceral and, and see to your pants, although there's that element to it because it's still rock and roll. It's still got the metal drive. But it's, there's an art to it. There's a craft involved. So flying finals back and forth is really a great way for this type of music to, to find itself. Because I can sit back and I can listen to what Brian did on the bass, and I can say, dude, man, you are freaking killing on this, but how about we try this in this section? Like, I like that, but how about we do this? And that way we can actually write some songs together, which is another thing that we didn't do a lot of the last time around. 
we may in fact actually end up working much more collaboratively this time around because of this format. So I'm really excited to see what that does, uh, especially with Brian uh, specifically, because Brian is, is a heavy wig, you know, um, bass player Brian, who, who's kind of a quiet guy, doesn't talk as much as I do, certainly. Um, doesn't really get heard as much, and I don't think people really realize what a what an impact he had on things too. He's a really really technical, high minded kind of guy. Very bright dude, can hang in there on any of the shit that we've been talking about. He'd be right at home, and then he could add to it, and then he could go into his whole you know own mechanical engineering thing because he's very mechanical. Um, and that his sort of aptitude for mechanics and things lends itself to his bass playing. Um, and he is a very very well articulated player man he can really play a lot of stuff which pushes me you know what i mean like if i got a guy that can play you know uh 30 second note triplets i'm gonna write them because i want to hear them i love i love that you know i love the idea of, i love bungee jumping with the guitar in my hand you know what i mean it's like, like you know how far can we push this thing what can we do you know and even if we're kind of old dudes i think that's kind of what makes it even more fun is being a little bit older that's where you find the inspiration that's how it ends up not being the same old um i used to dread going out and playing the World Circus songs towards the end of the Think This Tour. I used to dread it because they were a couple of years old, and I get burnt on stuff. My brain is just the way I am. I get, I get tired of things really easily. Um, I don't think I could come out and do another World Circus or Think This. It's going to have to be new. It'll have to be something different. So, you know, Brian being able to contribute this time around through the writing process will be great. I'm not sure who the drummer's going to be, but I'm really hoping we get someone that comes on, and when I hear them, it makes me want to change all of my arrangements. <laughs> you know what I mean? I hope we get somebody that's like, oh, my God, this guy can play that. Well, then scratch that. Let's do this. You know, <laughs> I hope that it grows itself. You know, I hope that that enthusiasm is there because you as a listener, people as listeners feel that. They don't even, they're not aware of it, but they can feel it because it's a real thing. It's, it's a, a tangible thing that happens, and that's the spark when you're doing something prod. You're triggering each other. You're pushing each other. The musicality is coming up, and then you come together and you play it live, and it's like, holy shit, you made all these puzzles pieces fit together. There's the joy of that. Man, it's, it's such a great, great kind of music form to play within. I, I just love it. And once again, giving my hats off to the genre that I, that I owe so much to. Heavy metal is such a wonderful art form, man, because it incorporates all of this. You can do anything almost underneath the heavy metal moniker and still have it be what it is. You know, I just happen to be lucky in the fact that I hear really dark and heavy things naturally. So it, I kind of it lends my I lend I'm a natural for it. You know, because I'm not really what you would consider like a metal scene person. That's not really where my head is at. I'm more into my art and to thinking. Um, but I naturally am kind of a dark spirited sort of person. So my music comes across with that, and I'm lucky that way. I have a built in audience with it. So. Um, yeah, man, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be it's going to be kick ass. Definitely, and you know, with the you know the title of Blood, Guns, and Oil, definitely very relevant, given that from Think This to now, nothing was really uh, nothing has really changed as far as the status quo has gone. You know, Bush to Clinton to Bush to Obama has been nothing different. Only have been a worse progression in the police state and the military state. Uh, definitely looking forward to uh, some of the relevance that is going to be dropped down on that album. I'm thinking about adding one word to the string, blood, guns, and oil, money. Yeah. I'm almost thinking about throwing money in there somewhere. I'm not even kidding about that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to sound like blood, sugar, sex, magic. You know, I'm prepared to, you know, sound like, you know, people relating the, the five words together, four words, or I remember words. But, you know, I just, I, I almost want to work money into the into the title. I almost changed that. I was almost thinking about getting rid of the blood, guns, and oil as a working title, actually, because for a couple of reasons, um, 
because it's already been around for as long as it has been. But I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that. That kind of validates it a little bit more for me. Because I, I think you're right. I think you're 100% right, Alex. I think it is still as relevant as it was five years ago. Um, I don't think things have changed enough. In fact, I think things have actually gotten worse in the exactly. last five years. I don't think they've gotten better. You know, so... I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, really. with every the drones, like we have non-military CIA employees sitting in an office building in the U.S. literally playing video games with other people's lives. They have a screen in front of them, and they click the button, and they drop a missile on somebody, and those yes. people's children die. And we, you know, not to take away from the, the people that died in the, the elementary school shootings, but we see their faces. We don't see anybody's faces that gets killed overseas, and do those people's children matter less than ours i don't i don't no, buy that don't. no they don't no they don't man and there's that, that's your libertarian spark kicking in again man that's your free-mindedness i'm 100 percent with you on that you know suffering is suffering and i don't care if it's my kids or your kids man mm-hmm. and that's my bar too man that is that that is interesting to use children children are my bar anything that affects children adversely anything that hurts kids i'm against i don't care what it is i can't justify it i don't give a f- if it's if kids are being hurt by it, then I then it's wrong, and I don't want to pay for it. It's one of the things that makes me absolutely irate about our our system that I have no say in where my tax dollars go, mm-hmm. and the fact that I've got to flip the bill for this drone program. Do you know that I'm in Syracuse? You can Google this, and I invite anyone who's still listening to this to do that. Um, my Air Force base up here, Hancock, is actually one of the strongholds for the drone program. We run drones out of here day in day night. So, they, same they fly here. Out of here. We 24 have, hours a day. Oh, really? Yeah, we oh, have yeah, one, course, one, course, one course, in San right, Diego. Right. Well, of course, we have, you know, every district has somebody, you know, yes, you know pull, getting now, support actually, right, for military. It's, it's not novel anymore. Yeah. A couple of years ago, it was really unique that Syracuse had that. And now everybody's got it, so it's not as novel as it once was. But we, we specifically, um, a lot of people have been arrested at this airport for protesting, you know, oh, and, yeah. and it, it's, you know, it happens. It's almost like, you know, kind of monthly at this point. But somebody gets popped, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little big stink is what I like to call it because you don't hear about it nationally, but they make a huge deal about it like a terrorist has been caught, you know, mm-hmm. in, in Homeland Security's net here. It's like a, exactly. another, you know, another protester was arrested today uh, with ties to blah, 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 and there's this sort of vagary that goes on that makes everyone sound like they're working with, you know, Bin Laden's ghost, and it's just absolutely retarded, man. Exactly. That, that's, that. uh, that's going back to, you know, how Homeland Security is trying to turn everybody into, you know, like a lookout for the suspicious person. The, the cop that harassed me at NBC wanted to make sure we weren't America's most wanted. Of course, he even wanted to get my information so he could plug it into the, into the system. Right. But, uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, calling people that are peaceful terrorists just, you know, to s- silence political opposition. And, you know, we have the same thing going on here. We have uh, General Atomics is the local drone manufacturer, a little bit East County, San Diego. Um, they uh, another another group, uh, the, the Veterans for Peace, have uh, protests of their. They're probably not yeah. right on their property because, you know, they, they, they don't want to get arrested, which is good. You know, uh, I guess right. the, the point is to have cars driving by, see all the things. And but, uh, you know. It, they manufacture the drones here. They actually might be the ones that are manufacturing a technology for a death ray. Like instead of missiles, these drones will just have lasers. Uh, yep, I know about the death rays mm-hmm. and, the, and the sonic cannons, dude. And there's so many. There's, there's actually tons and tons of what's considered actually non-lethal technology that, in fact, is being developed under the guise of non-lethal technology using the licensing that allows them to develop weaponry under that heading. And then, of course, with the flip of the switch, it becomes lethal technology. All of these technologies have been developed under the Non-Lethal Technology Act, which is part of the original Homeland Security Act. 
Um, and, you know, the thing of it is, is that, again, when you get back in, it's kind of almost elitist sounding on our part because it's like, it sounds like we know something that no one else does. <laughs> and, and it's not that. It's the information is literally blocked. If mm-hmm. people knew what was going on, it would not go on. Mm-hmm. People would, would respond to it accordingly. But because they don't know, because they're so completely distracted with the mundane and nonsensical, man. You know, watch American Idol. You know, watch the infotainment news. Turn on your Fox. Get boxed in. Go find the next device to, to fill the void for your emptiness. And, and keep going, man. Keep going. You're a work unit. You know, we need you to be profitable. You know, don't let the terrorists win. Get out there and shop, <laughs> you know? You know, just to give people an idea of, you know, progress, ETA-wise, um, Maybe get uh, start getting some tracks back from Brian and Mike here in February and uh, start working on it so that, you know, maybe there's a couple of different possibilities, too, on how we're going to do this release. We may release it in three-song chunks rather than do one solid release. One of the, one of the thoughts was is if we do it in three-song bits, like every couple of months drop three songs, and then finally with the last three songs put it together as a collected record, um, you know what I mean, so that you end up with 12 tunes. You asked me about track number before. Um, I keep bouncing around with the number 12 because that gives me a chance to put out four sets of three songs. <clears throat> and then on that last set, <clears throat> culminate maybe with a fourth song, maybe even have a 13th song. I don't know. Do something just to keep people interested. Because it does seem like um, folks are interested right now. And if we wait another year to come out with product, I don't know. We've already kind of threatened once to come out with something and we didn't. I don't want people to think we just did the same thing again. So we kind of inadvertently released that we were getting back together. That can, It came out a little bit sooner than I would have liked it to. But now that the information is out, I think it's incumbent upon us to act quickly and strike while the iron is hot. Again, not to sound like an old business guy, but it is what it is. You know, people are interested right now. I want to meet the interest, not from a sales standpoint. I'm not talking about money. I'm just talking about interest. You know, when people are aware of you, they're aware of you, and, and you want to, you know, not take advantage even. That's even a bad word. I'm, I'm, I want to pick and choose the right words here. I just want to come out with something when people are wanting to hear it. I don't want to do what we did last time, which was drag our feet. So I'm, I'm planning on cutting to the chase, and just keep an eye out, man. Keep an ear out for what's happening. We're, we're really looking forward to it. Um, I know I, I'm going to have to speak for Mike and Brian at this point because they're both gung-ho on the project. They're definitely, definitely in on it. They're really excited. Um, I just hope we can come out with something that does the toxic thing justice and, and serves, you know, the metal community and uh, says something politically and socially as well in the process, man. You know, I hope it, it meets a lot of fronts. I, I, I got high hopes for the project. Definitely. Well, thank you very much for stopping by the show, Josh. I've been talking with Josh Christian. He's the lead guitarist of Toxic, spelled with a K. Got World Circus out. Think This on iTunes uh, was re-released by Metal Mind in, uh, in 2007. Be sure to pick it up. Check it out. Uh, do you have any particular songs that I should play uh, after this? You're asking me? Yeah. Any, any, anything think, you want to play? I think you should play? I think you should play both albums end-to-end at the end of this. No, <laughs> I'm only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I probably, how about, how about one favorite from each record? Um, Voices from World Circus and Black and White from Think This. Sweet, definitely. So this is uh, Voices from uh, the album World Circus and then Black and White from the album Think This by Toxic. And I've been speaking with Josh Christian, lead guitarist. Josh, thanks for stopping by the program. Brother, thank you so much. And thanks, everybody, for listening, man. I appreciate it. All right, so you're listening to KKSM Oceanside. PalomarCollegeRadio.com and AM1320. Here is Voices 
and black and white by Toxic. Be right back with the NAM show. KKSM the Radio Revolution.
Black and White by Toxic. And before that, Voices by Toxic. My guest for this last hour was Josh Christian, the lead guitarist of Toxic. It's spelled with a K. Uh, certainly one of my biggest influences. Um, you know, got to know these guys over the past few years. I've jammed with Tad, the drummer, a few times. And uh, I was trying to put together a gig with my band and Believer a long time ago. But, uh, you know, the venue never really responded and, and kind of like just became a lost idea but uh, i uh kind of suggested to josh maybe to play bass but uh we were it never really happened but um i kind of just you know as i was as i was beginning to form as a shredder and a guitarist toxic was certainly one of my uh biggest influences still is and you know one certainly you know great uh not just playing but songwriting to you know fit the playing and i think that's you know one thing is, is to be technical but uh, to put that into songwriting and and making it memorable and stand out that's that's a whole other thing that not many people get um so i want to shift gears over here to the nam show which i went to uh the other weekend which is in anaheim anaheim convention center i only went thursday and friday uh thursday night i went to the dia dario show got to see alex skolnick play with uh, joey belladonna and gene hogan from death and a few guys from mastodon it was pretty cool and uh, had an interesting experience uh at the uh at the uh, at the media registration, a la Hunter Thompson, uh, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, just a weird situation with the media registration. Um, we are right, we were already in line. Uh, my camera guy already had his pass, and they scanned it, but they couldn't print it from that line. We had to go specially to the media thing, so it looked on their computer as if it already been printed. So one of the people there came and gave us a hard time. Thought we were imposters or trying to have another person uh but it, it was wacky and i probably couldn't go into the all the details without incriminating uh but when i get to the first one I, i'm these interviews are kind of out of order um but i'm going to start off first with um with gary jabillion who is my bass player uh for my band reason he's also well known for his own band which is his brainchild jabillion sitar uh, and we're going to talk more about that, but uh, he, here's Gary Jabillion uh, live from the NAMM show floor. Joining me now is Gary Jabillion. He is the lead Chapman stick player for Jabillion Sitar. He's also a luthier at Stick Enterprises. How are you doing, Gary? Good, man. How are you doing? Pretty good. And we're here at the NAMM show 2013 Musical Instruments Expo. Talk a little bit about Stick Enterprises and what the Chapman stick is, why you play it, and why, why you think it's such a great instrument. I actually play the NS stick, and that's co-designed with Ned Steinberger and Emmett Chapman. And uh, I like I chose that over the, the traditional Chapman stick because of the tuning. The learning curve was a lot less. Um, being a bass player, I played five-string bass for years. So the NS stick is tuned like a five-string bass with three higher guitar strings. So the learning curve was a lot less, so I just went for that. Um, so it's uh, pretty much like a bass on steroids. That's the way I like to describe it. And uh, it uh, offers me the versatility of all types of techniques that I use, whether it's tapping, slapping, popping. Um, it's set up ideally for... Uh, two-handed tapping though pretty low action very low action actually um, and I can control the volume 
according to how hard I tap the uh, each note. So um, it's 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 great. It's great to use it as a regular bass as well and finger style. You know, so it's got a great natural sound where with no effects at all even. Uh, has active EMG front tele pickups and uh, it's just a real ballsy sounding instrument. Awesome and uh, talk a bit about the art of guitar making since you engage in it. Yeah well I learned everything about it at Stick when I moved out from Detroit in May of 05 and um, they taught me everything from start to finish so I didn't have any prior experience but I've always had jobs, like hands-on job before that. So it was easy for me to pick it up. And um, especially uh, lately doing the high gloss finishes on the NS stick. So we're offering that and a high buff and polish. And it looks really sharp. If they, people go to stick.com and look at the Hot Shots page, it'll show the latest instruments that I've made with the high gloss finish and there's we're, we have instruments in reserve which are available for sale immediately so we, we're making enough where both stick and the NS stick where they're in stock so people don't have to wait a year anymore they're available a lot quicker we, we beefed up production to keep up with the demand so cool yeah and what's going on with Jubilee and Sitar uh, right now? Well, right now, actually, we're taking a break. I mean, December was crazy. I had to travel, and then there was uh, Christmas, New Year. It's a bad time for us to do any gigs, really, in general, for a lot of bands, too. Everyone's, like, on holiday mode, you know. But um, we're getting back into it. Um, probably next week we'll start rehearsing again on a weekly basis. And we determined to put out some more new material. We have a bunch of new stuff. And then once we take a month off, though, we have to relearn it. And we're rusty again. So it's a matter of relearning and perfecting our the tunes that we wrote. And that's always a challenge. Um, and once a week sometimes isn't enough, but we have other things going on. That's all we can afford to do. So, I'm well, staying busy with that, and then with other projects, like Reason. Yeah. <laughs> Keeps me busy, right? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, Gary recently performed with my band Reason at uh, Libertopia, which is at Humphreys by the Bay, with a super large stage, the largest stage I've ever played. I've seen Dweezil Zappa play on there, so it's very interesting to be walking in uh, their footsteps, like... Wanting, wanting to play at the the Whiskey Go Go to walk in Chuck's footsteps on the uh, the LA stage. Oh yeah. Um, do you guys have any gigs coming up planned or? Um, nothing right now. No, we're not in a big hurry. Uh, we like to space them out too, and um, that way you get more of a draw too. Instead of playing all the time and then you have five six people show up. It is all about the draw, and it should be. So I think too many bands, they play too much, and then no one comes to see them, and then they bury, the band breaks up. So we're in no hurry, you know, we, but we're itching to play. But first got to rehearse, <laughs> and then 
get our set down again and then hopefully record some new stuff and uh, yeah we'll be back at it probably in a couple months do some shows so. what has been your favorite part of the NAMM show so far favorite part of the NAMM show uh, the women <laughs> no um, uh, I guess it's just uh, actually um, hanging out with friends and uh, family this time uh, my nephew uh, Alex he just turned 21 so his present from his parents and me were to hook him up with uh, a NAM badge from Stick. so I was able to do that and they flew him out here for the weekend and this is his first time out for an AM show so he's pretty blown away and he, he knows all the metal bands uh, tons of you know, the stuff I know plus millions of others that I've never heard of so he's in like heaven right now so hanging with him my cousins and Chris and Lynn and yeah, it was really cool yesterday for the first day to hang as a family kind of at NAM. that's pretty wild so and seeing all my friends and you guys you know it's, it's uh, another year to let everyone know you're still made it through another year. What did you think of uh, Joey Belladonna's performance last night? I thought he sounded freaking exactly like Dio in those Black Sabbath covers. I thought so too. He was pretty badass. That was really cool. The Man on the Silver Mountain yeah. was 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 my favorite. And uh, that, that was cool. It was a good night. Um, it was great. Seeing Skolnick is always great. He's one of my favorite guitar players. And uh, Gene Hoagland, I mean, always. So, yeah, it was a blast, man. I had a great time. Would you like to share your website with our listeners? Sure. It's uh, GaryJabillion.com, G-A-R-Y-J-I-B-I-L-I-A-N.com. Awesome. Well, Gary, thank you very much for joining the show. Thanks a million, Gary Jabillion. Yeah. And that was Gary Jabillion, GaryJabillion.com. So right now... I'm going to play one of his songs from his album. Uh, this is Body Clock by Jubilee and Sitar. And then after that, I'm going to play a song, uh, a little performance by Bernie Worrell from Parliament Funkadelic, live from the NAMM show. So stay tuned for after this Jubilee and Sitar song for a little piece of Bernie Worrell. Uh, really awesome. Stay tuned. KKSM, the Radio Revolution.
Parliament Funkadelic before that body clock by Jubilee and Sitar. Gonna be right back after this break. KKSM Radio Revolution. You're listening to KKSM. PalomarCollegeRadio.com. Like a time traveling space panther. KKSM. Cool people listen on AM 1320. Party people listen on Cox Cable 957. And traveling people. Listen on PalomarCollegeRadio.com or download the Ustream app for their smartphones. KKSM, the radio revolution. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and not of KKSM, Palomar College, its staff, the board of directors, or station management. You're listening to KKSM, Palomar College Radio. KKSM Radio. Welcome back to Free Thought Radio. I'm your host, Alex Fiddle. It is about that time for the KKSM News Brief. So in local news, Bonnie DeManis is trying to prosecute medical marijuana caregivers again and medical marijuana patients, but they dropped charges against Clint... I don't want to pronounce this wrong, but Clint Guidry and Cameron Mitchell, so congratulations to them for not having their rights trampled upon. Uh, Score one... Freedom and Liberty, zero Bonnie DeManis. So in state news, California Supreme Court will hear a case on medical marijuana dispensary bans. Uh, California high courts have already ruled, uh, such as the case of Javon Jackson, that brick-and-mortar locations who sell medical cannabis to qualified doctor-recommended patients is perfectly legal and that city councils, counties, and municipalities cannot ban such entities. This will further cement that notion, if the uh, case goes well, um, that state law is actually state law and that we can't toss it aside because people in city councils are nothing but sitting ducks for federal tyranny and threats on this issue. Uh, In national news, NYPD's surveillance of Muslims is under scrutiny. The NYPD has been violating surveillance laws to target Muslims for surveillance, uh, monitoring places where Muslims eat, shop, worship, even without any inkling of unlawful activity going on. Uh, And in big news, big news, this is breaking news 
uh, somebody had leaked the Obama administration's uh, rule book for targeting uh, American citizens with, uh, w uh, either for assassination uh, abroad, especially with the drones, like with the Alawaki case. Um, you know, it's, but it's so very vague. Let me let me describe um, how someone like me can get arrested for being at a protest, for being a libertarian, for, you know, they could have a drone come here and bomb KKSM without any kind of judicial warrant based on, based on this language. It says, an informed, high-level official of the U.S. government may determine that the targeted American has been recently involved in activities posing a threat of a violent attack and there is no evidence suggesting that he or she has renounced or abandoned such activities. Of course, the memo does not define recently or activities, so it could be like me attending an anti-drone protest the other week and getting my picture taken by General Atomics. Thank you very much. You know, my dad's from a communist country. I, would, I never heard about uh, people getting their pictures taken of yet uh, in America until I experienced it myself. A poll shows majority of Americans want Boy Scouts uh, to allow gays. 44% of men and 51% of women support lifting the ban. Of course, the Boy Scouts of America accepts federal and other government funding, so it is seriously against the law to continue such an atrocious policy. Uh, you know, it's hard. I, I'm not a fan of the Boy Scouts. Uh, Congress considers Aaron's law to reform hacker prosecutions. The Electronic Frontier Foundation has stated that they are optimistic about the bill retaining its integrity. And uh, whether it will pass is another question given the demonization of WikiLeaks and transparency by our own government. Aaron was a collaborator with WikiLeaks, which uh, details were limited to general statements by WikiLeaks on Twitter. Uh, not, no knowledge on the full extent of his involvement. And speaking of uh, transparency... Anonymous leaks some files on the Federal Reserve. Finally, I've been waiting for Anonymous or WikiLeaks to reveal something about the Presidential Debate Commission or, or, uh, or, or, or you know, uh, the Fed. And it finally happened. They released about 4,000 entries uh, regarding Federal Reserve employees. Uh, it's a step in the right direction. I think, uh, towards transparency, because guess what? We know more about the CIA than we know about the Federal Reserve. And they control our money. They're the reason why we're all poor and getting poorer. You know, our economy is shrinking because recessions are caused by artificial bubbles, artificial booms caused by the misallocation and uh, mal uh, investment of the perverse incentives offered by Federal Reserve printing money to lower interest rates to fund our government. In international news, um, uh, uh, Malala Yousafzai undergoes a successful surgery. A women's rights activist was shot in the head by an assassin, and successful surgery to remove the bullet occurred recently. In other news, PlayStation 4 uh, is set to be released this year. Announcements soon. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we get to, uh, that uh, Grand Theft Auto V uh, gets some of these new... Hopefully, it's, you know, an improvement in graphics, but we'll, we'll see. I'll, I'll keep you guys posted, but... That has been your KKSM News Brief. I'm Alex Fiddle here, host of Free Thought Radio. So I'm going to be uh, putting out some... I, I wasn't going to... Uh, I have I reviewed some products at NAMM. I played some guitars and basses on videos. So if you want to go ahead, subscribe 
to the YouTube page, youtube.com slash freethoughtradiovids, and check it out there. Um, but right now, I want to get to my other guest from the NAM show. This is Brett Bringelson from Music Care, is a music charity uh, that helps uh, musicians without health care in their time of need. Joining me now is Brett Bringelson. He's a specialist at Music Hairs, and Music Hairs is a nonprofit that helps out uh, musicians who are uh, uh, suffering from illnesses and do not have health insurance. So, uh, do you want to give us a history of Music Hairs? Uh, what you guys have done for uh, average uh, musicians in their time of need? Sure thing. Uh, Music Hairs, we got our start uh, 1989 as a fund within the Grammy Foundation. Uh, we're a recording academy foundation that uh, assists musicians in those unforeseen times of need. Uh, you know, since we became our uh, uh, own 501c3 in 1993, uh, we've grown to assist, you know, more and more uh, uh, music professionals uh, year after year. Um, you know, last year alone, we assisted nearly 3,000 individuals with nearly $3 million. In uh, that form, uh, takes the uh, uh, takes the form of direct assistance grants, uh, as well as uh, dental clinics, uh, medical clinics, and uh, various other uh, medical specialty visits that we've been able to uh, put on across the country. Cool. And is it just uh, healthcare, or is it other kind of? Uh, well, um... through our uh, general grant program, uh, you know, we're open to requests uh, towards medical, dental, uh, as well as just basic living expenses. Uh, if there's a music professional who's able to document at least five years of a career history earning their living uh, in recorded or live music, uh, we're able to consider requests uh, of that nature. Who are some specific musicians that you've helped out over the years? Well, we uh, do have strict confidentiality uh, guidelines, so no one that I could divulge personally. But if you visit our website at uh, www.musiccares.org, uh, there are some client testimonials there that you could definitely uh, uh, visit and see some of the folks that we have assisted. Cool. And why do you think this is so important that, uh, especially in this day and age, that people have assistance? Well, the, uh, the performing musician and anyone who earns their living in music uh, uh, usually doesn't have health insurance or the coverage or the security in case something uh, does happen. Uh, so the, in those times of need that uh, uh, someone doesn't necessarily foresee, uh, we're a safety net and you know there to address those issues. What is your guys' plan for this year as far as uh, fundraising, any kind of events uh, in general? Well, our uh, main fundraiser is actually taking place in a couple weeks. Uh, the Friday before the Grammy telecast, we honor a uh, musician of note, uh, this year Bruce Springsteen, uh, so that we generate a bulk of our uh, assistance funds at that event. Uh, but throughout the year, we're looking to increase, uh, increase our initiatives uh, with our new Music Cares Medical Network, uh, trying to bring specialty care to uh, musicians uh, across the country. Uh, currently, we're in uh, uh, Los Angeles, uh, Nashville, and New York, uh, but looking to expand that. So if there are any providers out there interested in donating their services uh, uh, to musicians in need, uh, by all means, get in contact with Music Cares. Awesome. And uh, where can people find Music Cares online? Uh, again, uh, www.musiccares.org. Uh, and that's Music Cares uh, with one C. All right. Well, Brett, thank you very much for joining the show. Hey, thanks, Alex. No problem. Brett Ringelson of Music Cares. And up next, I'm a Carvinite. I don't know if any of you, uh, but most of my arsenal is carving guitars, uh, my bass. Uh, I have an Alan Holdsworth signature, uh, except for my Chuck Schuliner BC Rich. Uh, my uh, music space is probably a carbon showroom, but that's because, you know, uh, factory direct, you pay less, but you get like insane uh, craftsmanship, uh, for especially for custom guitars. Most custom guitars are upwards of six grand 
I, you know, I paid uh, you know $1,400 for a really complex guitar like the Alan Holdsworth guitar, semi-hollow. Uh, so I interviewed Mark Kiesel, founder of, uh, or, or not founder, his, his late father was, but um, we talked about the Jason Becker guitar, uh, which came out, so check it out. Joining me now is Mark Kiesel, son of the late Lowell Kiesel, owner of Carvin Corporation. I'm a huge Carvin fan of Carvinite, and we're here... Uh, standing in front of the Jason Becker guitar. So how are you doing, Mark? I'm doing great, Alex. So uh, when did you first discover Jason Becker in, uh, in the heyday of his career? Well, with uh, Jason Becker and Marty Friedman when Cacophony back in the late 80s. And they played our guitars, and uh, then Jason Becker acquired the, the Lou Gehrig's disease, unfortunately, and you know had to quit his uh, playing career. But... We've uh, revived his original guitar. It's almost like the original one that he played in the 80s. And uh, so it's a signature model with Jason Becker. And uh, it's really gotten great reviews. And uh, it's selling really well for us. And uh, uh, do any portions go to Jason or to ALS Research? Yes, it's a signature model. So, yes, it goes to uh, Jason Becker's foundation to help take care of him. Awesome, and he definitely had a really good concert for himself up in uh, San Francisco. Actually, another one uh, two days ago. Okay. Yeah, and uh, it was phenomenal meeting him. He's a great person. What do, you, what do you think about Jason Becker as a person, especially as he's grown with the disease? Well, what he's done is amazing, you know, just to be able to create music with his condition is just fantastic. What was it like having them at the NAMM show at, Car at the Carbon booths doing some demos? Oh, it was awesome. Yeah, they would just totally fill it out. We did the L.A. Guitar Show. Uh, they did our Hollywood store clinics, our Santa Ana store clinics, and they would just pack it out. Uh, anything else uh, new for Carvin this year? Well, we have several new models. We've got, uh, you know, our uh, eight-string model. We have a new DC 600 awesome. model, six-string. We have uh, new inlays that we're able to do now. Uh, block inlays in the maple fingerboards and uh, a lot of new options we're always adding new options uh, new uh, fret wires all the time and just about any one of our models can be built in over 250,000 ways and you you wouldn't recreate the same guitar twice and where can our listeners find that sort of uh, build your own guitar on the carbon website well, they would just go to the Carvin website, carvin.com, and uh, look at guitars or basses and pick the model you want. There's a builder there. You can have fun with the builder creating all kinds of different combinations, all the different woods, colors, inlays, fret wires. Build it just the way you want, right from our USA Custom Shop. Awesome. Definitely a guitar builder's uh, paradise for those that are into custom guitars and for those that live locally here in San Diego. Uh, where is the Carbon Factory and the showroom located at? It would be on World Trade Drive, uh, 12340 World Trade Drive and Carmel Mountain Ranch. Awesome. Well, I would encourage all the listeners to go there, check out their guitars. You can play them. You can see them. They're beautiful pieces of art. Uh, I've been speaking with Mark Kiesel, owner of Carbon Guitars. It's been nice speaking with you. Thank you, Alex. No problem. And this is Images by Cacophony. We'll be right back after this. KKSM, the Radio Revolution. And Jason, Jason Becker and Marty Freeman, Cacophony.
a sucker? Come on, everyone who's a sucker, raise your hand. Well, obviously I can't see who's raising and who's not, but I'd guess not too many of you are. Now, here's another question. Do you shop at the mall? I'd guess that a lot more of you fall into that category. Well, I have some bad news, and I have some good news. The bad news is that if you shop at the mall or any other overpriced retail store, you are a sucker. The good news is that you can stop the madness. Now, I'm sure your town has a goodwill. Go there, and you are magically no longer a sucker. You're paying at least half as much, and sometimes less, not to mention supporting a great foundation. And after a while, when you've saved millions of dollars shopping at Goodwill, you can even donate and give something back, while at the same time cleaning out your garage. Goodwill, a surefire cure for suckers. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and not of KKSM, Palomar College, its staff, the board of directors, or station management. You're listening to KKSM, Palomar College Radio. KKSM. Am I driving okay? I think we're fine. On your radio at AM 1320, on your TV at Cox Cable 957, and online at palomarcollegeradio.com. KKSM, the radio revolution. Welcome back to Free Thought Radio, facebook.com slash freethoughtradio is where you could find the show. Uh, again, youtube.com slash freethoughtradiovids is where I'm going to post all the videos from the NAM show. It's freethoughtradiovids, V-I-D-S. And I want to talk a bit about our foreign policy. I know I do a lot, but I think there's a lot of misconceptions. And I want to talk about how we've created all the problems that we're dealing with now. Our government, literally, not in any kind of ambiguous way, created Al-Qaeda and was in bed with Saddam. And that starts under, under Reagan with uh, Bush Sr., Cheney, Powell, and Rumsfeld. Uh, and that's in the early, and it even started under Jimmy Carter, too. Um, and this was before we were enemies to them. We were, this is part of the Iran, you know, weapons uh, smuggling thing. It also, you know, it also went, we were also trying to, you know, get Iraq to be cozy with us because they were enemies with Iran. And that was all Iran was thinking about was Iraq. So we tried, you know, to deal with the you know the hostage situation through them. So we were cool with uh, with uh, Saddam. We basically funded Al Qaeda. And at the end, when the you know to to create a sort of Muslim revolution against the uh, against the Soviets, you know, so we were going to create not just any Muslim group, you know, because not all Muslims are terrorists or extremists or, you know, whatever we want to label everybody, you know, due to our brainwashing TV programs like 24, Homeland, NCIS, you go down the list. Um, you know, we created this radical group on purpose. We targeted, you know, the people that were extremists and built them up. We built up the Mujahideen. Uh, we were, uh, the CIA solely responsible for organizing and arming the Mujahideen sending arms to Iraq and Iran in the 80s with the Contra situation. So how can we pretend to fight Al-Qaeda now, especially when we are still supporting the rebellions in Syria and Libya that, act, that have Al-Qaeda in them? So we're f supporting Al-Qaeda to fight Al-Qaeda? Doesn't make any sense. You know, it just goes to show that this is, you know, how, why are we even pretending nowadays? Like, uh, it seems like it's all a game to really get us to be in perpetual war. And, you know... Uh, at the end of the Afghan war, one of our officers went to uh, talk to Al-Qaeda before, you know, we said we gave our farewells. You know, they gave him a pat on the back and say, said that they were doing God's work. 
Thank you, CIA. So if you look at the, the Times Square bomber, what was his motive? He said that people in Pakistan get innocent people get killed by drone strikes all the time. He didn't think he was doing anything any different. He thought he was bringing equity. Not to justify what he was doing, not to justify 9-11. I'm not trying to say that. But, you know, our government has been, been you know, creating groups like the Mujahideen. We've been, before that, we've been marauding, basically dicing up that place, you know, neocolonialism, essentially. So the government has successfully been able to, you know, keep the people dumb and docile, saying we could do all this stuff overseas and it's never going to come home. Well, 9-11, and this was the war coming home, it's our cons consequences being realized that we think we can have a war and not have it come, you know, to us, you know, especially uh, to this degree. I mean, uh, at least with Japan and Germany, they were standing armies. You know, we created, you know, kind of a guerrilla group by funding and creating the, Mu the Mujahideen, you know, so you could thank the CIA for 9-11. And... Uh, I, I, I want to talk a little about a little bit about the airstrikes by Israel in in Syria. So the U.S. basically told them to do it, told Israel to strike Syria. So the and you know we are just you know Israel's the excuse now, but we've been for years the U.S. government has been trying to invade and topple Syria. You know. Uh, <laughs> To, for the oil or, or, you know, to get control of that whole region and, and make them, uh, you know, like I was talking with Josh Christian, you know, get, giving them a central bank. Uh, this was all part of a roadmap laid out by George H.W. Bush, Colin Powell, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, bef uh, before it was about oil, but now Israel is the excuse for our government to finally send all its troops it has into Turkey and across the border into Syria. So this re regime change agenda will prove deadly for both countries as it will create more terrorists for the U.S. And it, like I said, you know, Times Square bomber motive. Uh, create more terrorists for both the U.S. and Israel to, deal, to have to fight in the future as both governments wipe out plenty of innocent civilians in Middle East and Muslim countries who will in turn want equity in innocent deaths on the Israeli and U.S. side. If the country would step, if both countries would step back and end their imperialism in the re, in the region and allow Palestine to be a free state, aggression from either side would eventually cease. And if not, well, at least we're stepping back, and we could find out who our real threats are then, instead of being aggressive and creating threats. You know, getting all these enemies towards us. Unfortunately, the people in the Israeli government do not care about their own people. They are rather pawns for a military-industrial complex that allows them to stay in office and perpetuate their aggressive nationalism that is a, min a minority view held by a small group of supremacists and racists in that region. Uh, for example, the Israeli government has been secretly inoculating Ethiopian Jews, you know, Jews that are not white. I think, you know, they're all, you know, the, the, being, you know, formerly of Jewish, you know, you know, I was under the God delusion. I'm an atheist. So, you know, if you don't believe in God, you don't believe in the text, you're not what you you're not part of that. So I'm an atheist. I never really have. I never had. I've never been to any religious institution, never been bar mitzvahed or baptized or anything like that. Uh, so I am, you know, firmly uh, atheist. But, you know, uh, they have been injecting Ethiopian Jews with birth control to prevent uh, uh 
people from from conceiving. So you know, population control. This is actually that's actually considered to be eugenics and genocide under uh, what was laid out after the Nuremberg trials. So you know, the, it's not far fetched to say that the government is, is racist and representing a, a small group of ra- racist people who have been you know attacking Ethiopian Jews and other Jews that are not uh, you know of their you know high view. So you know, it's. <laughs> To, to say that, you know, Israel is all, you know, that they don't re- represent every Jew. Literally, they don't. Uh, you know, uh, so it's a hell, it's, it's a minority, but unfortunately minorities get into power. As long as you have a gun, you have more power than a, ma- a majority. Um, so so uh, many people disapprove, but have no way of shaking off Israel's, many people in Israel have no way of shaking off Israel's entrenched two-party system, because both of their two major parties support expansionism and increased settlements in Palestinian land. So those who dissent to Israel's status quo will unfortunately have to endure the enemies that their own government creates for them until they can break up their own government's power hold, uh, given that Iran says they will come to Syria's aid if this continues. So literally, they're at, they're wanting to plunge the, the world into a war. Uh, and again, you know, um, unfortunately, powers, they want to drag the entire world down with them in a holy war that can easily become World War III. If this strike never happened, would Iran have come to Syria's aid in the first place? We have a serious misconception of where terrorism comes from. Israel's not really acting in their defensive interest. They, I mean, they, they could, they have, they have the right to, but what they're doing right now is clearly not. Uh, like the U.S., they are acting as aggressors to take over their land and kill civilians for no good reason and, and using uh, God as an excuse. When it is clear that not all Jews nor nor not all Israelis support Zionism and, and such human tragedies perpetuated by a small group of people in the government, you know, separating people from government, uh, people who criticize Israel are not anti-Jewish. The disconnect is thinking that you have to support a government in order to support a group of people. Just like it is a farce, it is a lie to say that people that criticize the modern U.S. government's militarism are somehow anti-U.S. Just like, you know, I don't believe that not that all, not all Muslims are terrorists. Not all Muslims are terrorists and not all Jewish people support a brute nationalistic uh, military force falsely flying, you know, banner uh, of goodness. Just like the U.S., the, we're not acting in our defensive interests at all. We have, haven't been. We've been engaging in interventions since the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. Even before that, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, going to, you know, the Spanish-American uh, War for no reason, just so he, you know, f- he went to battle. Actually, that's the one thing I respect about Teddy Roosevelt. He actually went to battle himself a- instead of, you know, getting— because, you know, anybody that says, you know, that we have to, you know, stand— by Israel, no matter what, no matter what the policies are, you know, not saying that, you know, they're, uh, we shouldn't stand by them if they actually are, you know, uh, under threat. But really, the in, the entire start of it was British government owned that regional land. They, 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 they lost all of their colonies, uh, that being Palestine. So they installed Israel uh, to have a foothold in that region. So uh, using, their, using them as a pawn, uh, installing these puppet militarist dictators in the government, you know, not having a way for the actual people to vote in somebody that would represent them, and to create instability in the region, because really, people profiting off of war at the top, they want to see both the Jews and the Muslims kill themselves entirely, because that means more bombs, and you know what? What, what do they say? You know, uh, it's easier to control 100 people than a million people. You know, population control 
you know, they're going to get rid of undesirables. And you, you look at the top, you know, the Vatican, Christianity, they think Jews go to hell. What do they think? What do they think about Muslims? I think, uh, you know, these war profiteers and these uh, insane Christian fundamentalists want to see both the Jews and the Muslims wipe each other out. And it's 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 insane. Another news item: uh, GMO foods are government funded. By the way, uh, you know that's why you know people think that you know organic foods more expensive. It really is not. You pay for it in your taxes. It goes straight to Monsanto. You know it, it's uh, you know it's through the farm subsidies drives the price down surpluses go up so we have high we have so much corn we need to make uh, high fructose corn syrup causing diabetes and obesity and by the way a strain of GMO uh, genetically modified foods does cause a gene to emit a, a virus in the food so if you're not uh, that's the problem with the you know bad economy you know being worsened on purpose by the Fed is you know that people are less uh, able to be activists they can't hit the streets saying you know what the hell's wrong going on, on with our food uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to get these viruses from eating genetically modified crops. And it is human communicable. And that's the sad part about it. And, you know, when the monetary collapse happens and, and the, all, the, all the shelves are bare, you know, if all the farms that are left are all genetically modified, their pollen is going to go everywhere and pollinate real plants with their genetically modified uh, DNA. And we're forever going to have a... Uh, uh, food resource that is depleted of their nutritional value, and again, going back to Monsanto, a tool of government. You know, what what are is their goal? Population control to limit, you know, the nutrition nutritional value of food. You know, that's why I, I think it's so important that uh, that uh, you know, as much as it is anti-libertarian to have mandatory labeling, I think you know, uh, this is way more. It's getting rid of Monsanto's, you know you know, grip over our, you know, our government, you know, government, as Drew Carey said, man, if you watch uh, him on Reason TV, if the government made our food, we'd be scared to death. And the government is making our food. Our government and Monsanto, the line between them is so blurry. And I, I want to plug one, one more thing. Uh, uh, a nine-year-old girl has been using medical marijuana for her leukemia. And not just and not just smoking, this is, you know, the when I had Rick Simpson on the show, visit www.phoenixtears.ca, cannabis oil. And I want to make sure you, you have the proper production because, uh, you know, it's very easy. So you have to go to phoenixtears.ca for, you know, the complete information. But you take a pound of cannabis. You take, uh, you fill, it's all on there. It's like a certain uh, cannabis plant matter to uh, naphtha ratio. You use light naphtha, uh, pure uh, you know, you don't want anything in between, but it really gets off all the cannabinoids in the solvent. And here, science class, solvent and solute. The cannabis oil is the solute, and you boil away the solvent in, in, a, in a rice cooker that, that is auto, you know, censored. So if it gets too hot, you know, it automatically switches to the low setting so it doesn't evaporate the cannabis because cannabis evaporates at 380 degrees Fahrenheit. Um so, you know, you, a lot of people will have some doubts about cannabis oil. I say it's about proper production, man. Visit phoenixtears.ca and make sure you know what you're doing. Get good uh, cannabis buds. You know, make sure it's buds, not leaf or trim. You want to get the good kind because, you know, the, the potency will able to cause cancer cells to kill themselves. And, and among other diseases, you know, for example, UCSD does a study showing that uh, cannabis reduces muscle spasms with uh, multiple sclerosis, 
So it only would only make sense that double the dosage of cannabis, given that you condense a pound of marijuana into a tiny physical amount, but they, since it's a tiny physical amount, even though the potency is ridiculous, it, the, phys, the tiny physical amount makes it easy to digest because you couldn't smoke that much. You couldn't eat that many brownies without getting diabetes. Uh, you know, it, it is a very potent medicine at, at its most uh, pure form. Again, naphtha, poison, yes, but when you boil it away, it goes away because it's the solvent it's atta- and the cannabis molecules attached to the naphtha solute it's simple science and it boils away and and it's all gone you even add water towards the end of the boiling process to clean it out and and um, raise the boiling temperature of the of the of the mixture so the naphtha boils away even more um so you know make sure just visit phoenixtears.ca you know check out the youtube channel facebook.com slash free thought radio vids my interview with rick simpson um so i want to play you guys out with neon nights by black sabbath given that uh the Joey Belladonna, Alex Skolnick, uh, Gene Hoagland trio, Mastodon guys played Neon Knights, uh, and Joey Belladonna sounded so like Dio. So thanks again for tuning in, guys. Podcasts, mediafire.com slash freethoughtradio, or go on iTunes, search for Freethought, look for Freethought AAC, and download it for free tomorrow. Thank you all for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Christina Tobin of Free and Equal Elections Foundation. Good night, guys. You're listening to KKSM AM 1320 Oceanside. KKSM AM 1320 Oceanside Palomar College Radio.